what's up everybody you are about to listen to episode 14 of d spaces this episode features killer acid otherwise known as rob corradetti killer acid's brand of psychedelic cartoons was started in 2010 and has now taken the nft market by storm d's and killer acid discuss psychedelics their effect on art strange trips and much more please make sure to subscribe to itunes and spotify to catch all future episodes of d spaces and without further ado thank you for listening and enjoy the show good place to start talking about it um of course Tim Tim Mathilder's most famous line is is turn on tune in drop out right so that's that's what he's most probably known for if you had a soundbite about him and and I think a lot of people misinterpreted that at least he clarified it later he was like no no I don't mean drop out like of school I mean drop out like of uh, normalcy or conformity and change your mind up. so that was kind of I always thought that was sort of an interesting thing but yeah I don't know I mean I um, I was a, a high school student in Delaware in uh, the mid 90s and when I got turned on to psychedelics um, kind of a totally random place to get involved with that but yeah my first uh, the first acid trip I ever took is with uh the continuation of the orange sunshine acid, which is like the probably the more the more famous, um, one of the more famous acid uh, releases, I'd say. It was originally from the '60s, and um, from the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. So I know everyone kind of looked this up on their own, but orange sunshine sort of the shit. They were sort of continuing it um, in the '90s. It, had, it made like a resurgence. Somehow, I was fortunate enough to be dropped that the first time I ever did acid um so it was just kind of a mind-blowing experience as a as a 18 year old high school student um just uh I, I guess sort of not, nothing ever really got compared to that for me in terms of LSD again um just in terms of seeing actual uh pixelated airplanes and seeing trees that were trolls in the trees and seeing you know just the everything you you you're you're told or everything that you think you're going to see on a psychedelic trip is something i was fortunate to experience my first time and kind of never really came back from that sort of just that sort of changed my mind entirely i mean i always drawn always drawn artwork before that but after that i just remember i just couldn't stop drawing like i just sat down and i would just try to draw all this crazy stuff that was that kind of got in unlocked in my head a bit so so I just always kind of was trying to explain um or rationalize maybe those experiences and I had many others but this the first one really just set me set me down this this road and so flash forward a little bit I was in San Francisco in the summer of 1995 and I remember just seeing in the uh the newspaper the Guardian just seeing um an ad for this blotter art exhibit to benefit Timothy Leary. Um, so I went to the exhibit and it was, it was all just, um, just like maybe about 50 or so sheets of blotter paper and they were selling them. Um, and I didn't, I learned at the show that Timothy Leary was sick. He had cancer and he was, he was, he died next year, but my friend and I knowing who he was and knowing he was going to be at the show made this like, we were doing all this like weird sound collage stuff and tape loops. And I just remember taking this tape with me to the gallery 
that I was going to give Timothy Leary, like he's going to listen to it or something. But I got him to sign my, I remember just paying $25. It was like a, a sheet of um, blotter art by uh, the guy who put on the show named Mark McLeod, who I ended up being friends with much later, um, just randomly. But so I got him to sign my um, Alice in Wonderland. It's a famous Alice in Wonderland red blotter sheet. I got him to sign it and I gave him the tape and I was like, hey man, like uh, my friend and I made this tape for you. And he was like, what's it called? And I was like, well, uh, I guess it's called Rob and Matt. <laughs> Cause I didn't, I was so, I didn't know anything. And then he took the tape. He was so nice about it. And he was like, oh, listen to, I'll sh- I'm going to listen to it. Blah, blah, blah. And like, I was like, all right, man, you're like kind of my hero. Um, so 18 years old and I got to meet him. And then, you know, the next year he died. So that was kind of the very, sort of the very tail end of these, these old sixties heads. Um, kind of got lucky to meet some of them. Um, Stanley Mouse is still alive and Mark McLeod's still alive. Like, there's not too many of those sixties guys left that are sort of famous artists or thinkers or whatever. So I was feel fortunate that I was able to meet some of these guys along the way and feel like that maybe validates my own artistic journey a little bit. So, yeah, that's kind of the Timothy Leary story. Get that out of the way. That's awesome. I'm looking up uh, Mark McLeod's work right now. Actually, I should um, link some so people can actually see it. I think I yeah. found the Alice in Water, uh, Alice in Wonderland, Red Water. Yep. Well, you know what the unfortunate thing was is that uh, the next year, I uh, some some hippie in my college town traded me that. I traded him that for like eighty dollars worth of weed, and I really regretted it because that <laughs> that's not worth like maybe five hundred thousand dollars. I don't even know if you can get one. I, it was so stupid of me. I think I just like had a, I bugged out. I was like, I can't have this acid sheet in my house anymore. And like, <laughs> this guy was like, I'll give you 80. He gave me like a, you know, a quarter ounce or something of really good <laughs> weed, which you couldn't get in Delaware. I don't know how things are in Ohio, but at the time in Delaware, you couldn't get shit. So you I weren't getting was, in Ohio either. <laughs> I that was a good deal. So yeah, I was. You know, and and I remember going over his house at some other point and seeing it like on his, he put a hat on his little table with like a little frame on it. Man, he was, I was like, damn it, I shouldn't have given that that to that guy. But yeah, so anyway, um, <laughs> Mark McLeod. So in San Francisco, he run, he he lives in this house off Mission, uh, and he it's called the Institute of Illegal Images. And you can actually look it up on Atlas Obscura. I think that's the best place to look it up. Um. It's it's like kind of you have to call and you have to be like convince them you're not a narc and you have to like try to make an appointment and go hang out. So basically, this museum is in his is in his living room of his uh, you know Victorian house, and um, it's nothing fancy or anything. But I don't. Know, he pretty much has everything from the history of blotter art, psychedelic posters. Like the um, Bill Graham posters, the famous Bill Graham posters from the film world. He has, he's got the most of this stuff than anyone I've ever seen. And he's the only person that's really released any kind of books about blotter art and um, like the history of it. So this stuff kind of fascinates me. Um, but yeah, I suggest, I don't know what things are, how things are going now. I don't know if he's like accepting visitors anymore. I had to kind of fight to go see him, but the first time and then I kind of we became friends so then I was able to just go and, and show up but I'm not exactly sure what the deal is these days but um 
Yeah, so I don't know. Just kind of an interesting. He's he's like one of those old heads that's still around. Pretty much one of the last ones. Crazy. He has like Alex Gray paintings hanging in his like bathroom, like in his bedroom. It's just like weird, you know, crazy, like super expensive paintings just hanging up everywhere. So I think I found pictures of the inside of his house or some on Google. Yeah, you can see them. It's like a greenish, tealish background color with just a bunch of framed. Yeah. Frames everywhere. and all the frames have numbers on them, and those numbers are numbers that were categorized. They were from the um, the FBI invest. The FBI thought he was like hoarding massive amounts of LSD or something, which he was. But they weren't on the they weren't on the <laughs> they weren't on the blotter sheets that they found. So they they categorized everything and basically returned them to him. And the, the still frame pictures still have all the um numbers on them which is kind of crazy so they didn't find does he shit. ever get busted for acid he went to no he went to um he went to court for it he almost got put in jail but he he managed to they couldn't find anything on him so yeah and i actually don't i don't know what he was you know i don't really know what he had there whether he was could potentially get in trouble or not but i know he had it i know everything they checked was clean so he got off, but it's yeah, famous. It's a famous case, like going after someone. Um, so, and actually, that's kind of why. So, him and I talked about this a lot, and so that blotter art, you know, the it's um he 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 calls it the world's smallest billboard, which is like, you know, you're you're giving some this tiny thing, and it, it basically like tunes them into some other frequency, you know. And it, it, so it's like this this tiny little billboard changes your perspective. You know, you don't really. You don't really have to read it. You just kind of like interact with it, you know? So I, so I was also talking to him when I first went there, I was like, Hey, I want to know, like, who are these? And this is different than like the poster artists, like that we're talking about, like Wes Wilson or like Stanley mouse, like the famous, like Fillmore poster. Art. There's tons of like famous modern or sixties psychedelic American artists. Right. But sort of talking about like the, the artwork on the blotter sheets themselves. And I was like, Hey, who are these artists? Like, is there a book about the artists who made these, who made these blotter, this blotter artwork? And he's like, well, no, because there's no, there's no record of who they are because the art is just directly linked to the illegal trade of LSD. So like the artists aren't going to be like, Hey, I made that, you know, it's like, Oh, you made that. Okay. Well, you're coming to jail because you you're probably made the LSD too, or you're involved with it. Or So no one was, no one taking credit for these things. So I, I started thinking about it and I was like, these, these blotter artworks, they're like kind of like the sort of like a really early meme because no one takes credit for it. A lot of them have like pop culture references, like um like one of the most famous ones is uh the Mickey Mouse acid. That was another uh Brotherhood of Eternal Love, I think, um production. So that you know, there's all sorts of ones. There's one that's like a that black cat, um uh, what is it, like firecrackers maybe or poison i can't remember there's like uh snoopy there's just like and so many of these things are just these tiny little crappily drawn you know iconographic images that are just put on the the blotter art so i don't know just kind of really interesting to learn about that stuff and to kind of think about it in terms of like hey this is kind of like a meme these guys aren't there's no credit you know and they're just kind of making it on the spur of the moment really quickly down and dirty 
to advertise their asset. That's basically the, the purpose of it. Yeah, the distribution of it's interesting too. Like going back to the comment where um, he said it's the world's smallest billboard. It's like those get passed around. Everyone looks at them like they're, they get attention when they're in someone's hands. So it is kind of like you're sharing a meme before um, you're sharing it across like a network of semi like-minded individuals. Yeah. Kind of like a social network before a, a social network existed. They were, really like the, they were also like the original 10 K PFP projects, you know, <laughs> like 10,000 people got these or whatever. The, I think it was 9,000 maybe is on a sheet or some, I can't remember the exact number, but you can look that up on a standard sheet. There's different sizes, but I'm talking about the standard, like seven by seven or whatever. But thinking about it, like it is kind of like a PFP project because everyone gets the same image, right? The same little square and they, you know, the distribution of it works in weight in all these crazy different ways, but it, but everyone is, is connected to the same, the same weird collective conscious that the, that the asset sort of tunes you into, you know, it, so it is kind of, it is, I think, do think about it a little bit like crypto art as well, which is, you know, kind of, kind of weird to think about. <laughs> so. I'd be curious to see like some of your work overlaid with the, uh, like on a seven by seven or like just like yeah, what yeah. tabs of it looks like. Like I can picture it. It has the, such a distinct style that like, even if you got like a part of a foot or like a rock or like an eyeball, like you could still <laughs> tell by the vibe. I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I've done, I mean, I've done a bunch of, um, I've done a bunch of blotter prints. I think that there's, they're probably all sold out now. I had, I'm ready to do, uh, I've been negligent about this year's editions. So I'm, I'm going to get them out by the end of the year. I usually do four a year and then just release them. Um, but yeah, so the interesting thing, a lot of, a lot of art now is like those big, it's just a big one piece of art on the whole side, on the whole side. But traditionally, like they were also printed tiny, like pad printed tiny, tiny on the actual, each each um tab itself so i've kind of wanted to do two-sided blotter sheets that have like the tiny art on each tab and then have or sometimes it's every like four tabs or every 16 you know you have an image so that'd be kind of cool but also have the other side with the really big graphic would be fun but i haven't quite figured out how to do that yet so i need to i need to figure i need to find somebody who has that uh technical ability to perforate at that micro level you know what i mean so it's such a unique uh honestly it's an art form that i had no experience with before talking to you um thinking about just how small they are like i've been more of a shrooms guy haven't been uh big in acid myself but i can <laughs> imagine like i'm just i'm going through a bunch of um mcleod's work on google right now and yeah, yeah. it looks like he did one where there's like an Alice in Wonderland in the front and then in the back, like a, a flip side, yeah. like kind of yeah, yeah. how you just mentioned. That's yeah, that print is double side. I actually have one of those. I managed to get another one, but it's not signed by Timothy Leary, unfortunately. But yeah, it's an awesome piece because it's like double sided. And, you know, I don't know if he drew that. I, he's kind of like a um, he's a bit of like a prankster, you know, like he he can draw. He's like famous for drawing like the little test tube guys and. Then he did like a version of the test tubes, I think that were condoms. Like he's got like, he's just got, he's a funny dude and he's really good at, he was really early to, to like digital art too. So 
now I'm not sure if he drew that Alice in Wonderland or if that is like lifted from history. You know, I don't know because it's a pretty nice illustration. Um, it's, it looks like a vintage kind of style illustration, but I, I wonder. I actually don't know that, but uh, again, it's kind of like with the meme culture of the blotter art. You know, it's kind of like you can appropriate stuff for roughly recreate it. It's totally fine. Yeah, it has like that dollar bill vibe to it where it feels like it should be on a piece of currency. Uh, <laughs> I just right, right. it for the people who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. But yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy to think that like he was doing that just for like the acid art part. Like, I don't know. It, it would yeah, be yeah. hard for me to take a little piece of that. And like, I guess depending on what color I got, like it'd be hard for me to tell like, oh, oh that's from that batch. Well, I, I will say, like, I don't know, when I took the, the orange sunshine, it was printed with the tiny little suns. So it was like, you know, you got like one sixteenth of the actual little sun print. You could see it because it, they were they were printed, printed in a pattern. So it was pretty small. But yeah, in terms of like, I don't know how many people actually use these more. Um, I don't know what to call them. They're, they're just more like art pieces. I'm not sure. I mean, I've had people buy blotter prints from me and be like, I'm going to. I'm going to use these. I'm like, that's, I mean, I can't stop them. That's fine. But I don't know how effective that is. Like if you, once you cut it up, you, you barely see anything. If it's like an art print, you know, so it's, it's more effective <laughs> to have the tiny little pictures. I think some people might just want to do it too, for the story. Or yeah, like totally. the, the, the idea of it. it. Maybe there's something to it where like you get the blotter printed you take a dose from the water and then you like stare at the whole image of the one you just, I don't know. It's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. About the whatever, experience. Whatever you, whatever you got to do. I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty sure you don't care about what the hell is on that thing. And about an hour or two later, <laughs> you're not really fixated on it. I, it's just more of a way to, to differentiate what experience you're going to have based on you know, if you've, if you know people who've taken it or, you know, it's kind of like a trademark. So you're like, oh, that's the good shit or like, don't take that stuff. So yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. It's like a, uh, a brand almost. Yeah. Like, it is like, yeah, totally. So I don't know, kind of trying to figure out ways to involve, incorporate this sort of thinking into like crypto art or like, you know, drawing. So, you know, I just have a lot of these ideas swirling around in my head sometimes. And I'm like, how do you, you know, some, eventually it might come out, you know, oh, that's how I should, that's how I can use that idea or whatever. It's like throughout the 90s, when you were experimenting and, you know, working on your acid art, like, what did your um, jobs look like? Like, were you always just like a full-time artist or did you do other things on the side while pursuing this and then eventually were able to do it full-time or like what does that story look like to get getting to the point where you are now like you have such a incredible shop with all these amazing um you know products whether it's clothing dab mats posters you know whatever people want um and you know like what was that journey like starting from just being 18 and having this experience where you're like, Hey, I need to create this acid art. And like, this is what I'm going to do because it's all I can think about. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I never really thought about it. I, I was just trying to express myself. I think when I was younger, I was trying to like, you know, make sense of this. And I think a lot of people who are interested in psychedelia or this kind of artwork sort of take the same approach where you're just sort of drawing stream of conscious 
you're just drawing, drawing, drawing. You're not really like, you know, you're putting together like juxtapositions of things that don't necessarily make sense or, you know, it's like surrealism or whatever. You're, you know, sort of like inspired by like Salvador Dali or these old guys, you know? So I, I was just, I, for, for a lot of time, I just was drawing stuff. You know, in high school, I was like pretty prolific. Like every day I would draw. I got, I still have some of these notebooks and um, I, I actually lived near the beach in um, Maryland for a, a summer. And I met these hippie dudes who were, who had a screen print shop with their, the guy's parents who they were like postal workers and they like retired and then they gave him money to start this like screen print shop. So I like was screen printing down at the beach uh, one summer. And that's when I first put my um, artwork, artwork onto a shirt and you know in 1994 or 93 whatever there was no internet or distribution so you know it's a completely daunting experience to be like how do I like like you know what do I do with this like how do I like get this out in the world you know so I was literally just selling shirts out of my car out of the trunk of my car I had like a box of t-shirts for a year and I would just when I go to the park like people like people playing disc golf or whatever people knew that people sort of knew I had these shirts. So, you know, I would sell them to my friends or like people at the park for like $20. And that was my first experience with selling artwork. You know, I don't, I don't, I didn't um, pay taxes on that money. So that's for sure. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of my first experience making something with the art, like putting it on a t-shirt. And I, I was probably 17 or 18. Um, and then, I don't know, I kind of, I went to college at Delaware. I, I kind of didn't make anything like that for a while. I kind of, I was doing music and, um, you know, trying to be a fine artist, going to college, trying to learn. And I was screen printing. So I made a lot of screen prints um, in college, but I kind of like got steered into like different directions, you know, like you go into university and they're like trying to warp your mind or conform you or make you interested in some art crap and stuff. And I kind of like, didn't like it. So I just would, I would kind of like just, kept a low profile but I mean I did good I did good in college at at art but I kind of like didn't come out of it with you know I wish somebody had seen that had kind of steered me into like some a different direction like hey maybe you could just be a screen printer and make like books or t-shirts or whatever I didn't really quite understand how to to merchandise anything yet so um yeah it wasn't until quite a bit later that I started killer acid based on a couple other failed businesses that I, I attempted between between 1999 and 2009 I'd say I had you know I was in bands and I did like audiovisual projects I had one called Mixel Pixel we toured a lot and we, we collaborated with a lot of digital artists actually we had like projections we put screens up in front of ourselves and so we collaborate with a lot of really rad like uh animators and video creators and we had like live videos and stuff so that was kind of i spent like a lot of that time just sort of like experimenting and making band merch and then you know i that was kind of winding down around 2008 or 9 and then i started going to like shows and i would make like unsolicited posters so i've been i'm in like a hustler right like i'm selling t-shirts out of my car and then like 10 years later, I'm making unsolicited band posters for like bands I really like, you know. I remember like I made one for like Dan Deacon, I made one for Blonde Redhead, these, you know, these bands. Um, 
indie bands that I like. So I remember going to these pool parties in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I w- I had like my I went to the print shop and I like <clears throat> I just was I had like all these posters with me and I'm like, yo, I'm talking to like the people at the show. Can I like give these to the band? Like, can I sell these? Like, you know, can I? And they they were really actually kind of cool about it. And they, they were like, yeah, you can like sure go sit over there. You can sell them. We don't care. And so they so I gave them out. You know, and these people are cool and. But I spent some time on this stuff, you know. I feel like I would. I feel like the posters are pretty different, um, very similar to the style I still do now. Uh, but it was kind of like way less out there. There wasn't as much saturation, maybe, with psychedelic, you know, resurgence. Or it was kind of like seemed to be a little bit of a throwback for some people. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that's kind of how I started Killer Asset. Sort of segued from doing that and sort of like how do I collaborate with these bands like how do I collaborate with other people um how do I do that so I'm kind of starting to make t-shirts and figuring that path out and that from so 2010 I started Killer Acid officially and it's kind of been just chugging along um the last five years or so so it took me about five years to get established with it and you know the last five have just been like chugging along so yep that's awesome. But I, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy <laughs> that you can just like, I mean, we live in a world where you can just put something out there and show it to people and be like, Hey, I, I spent a lot of time on this. I really like your band. And then they obviously look at it and their mind is blown. They're like, Holy shit. Uh, yeah. But they might not answer your DM, you know, it's like, they might not answer. So you got to go out there. You got to, you know, you got to pound the pavement a little bit, I think still. Um, definitely I, I, I think that's yeah. like perseverance is the number one thing we see in this space for people who are successful you can't just like take five shots and give up like you have to take 100 shots thousand shots and it's yeah. just about sticking around and you know doing what you love and just taking those shots i think like one of the things i'm interested about too is how have you seen like the psychedelic um space and maybe like attention toward the psychedelic space shift over the last um you know from the mid 90s up until now because i'm sure like when i think like i'm 28 so i was born in the early 90s and um i grew up in that like anti-drug culture like everything like from weed to heroin is like the same and it's all bad and like over my lifetime i've seen a lot of stuff change but like i don't remember like anything before say like late 2008 2010 time frame i just remember like elementary school shit where it was just like nope this is what you do dare and then i was one of those kids who was like pretty much gonna obey authority so i never got into it because i was like scared of repercussions uh but like how have you seen that space shift because i feel like we're getting to a point now where it's like not celebrated but it's so much more accessible and open than it was yeah, like just, when I was right. growing up. It's just kind of become ubiquitous, I guess, because I think as people's minds are more um, inundated with information, um, like it's kind of harder to catch someone's attention or, you know, it's kind of like a cat, like, hey, look at this shiny light. Like, oh, look at this. Like, it's kind of like some of it um, is just the colors and the, the the brightness. It's just like window dressing. Like someone sees it and like, oh, wow, that's cool. And then, you know, so there is a lot, I feel like, of that when it comes to 
when it comes to like psychedelia, you know, you, you just, you, it forces you, even though you've seen it, even though it's everywhere, you, you still are forced to look at it and reckon with it because it doesn't make full sense, you know? So it, I kind of feel like that's what I really appreciate the most about psychedelic artwork. Um, I kind of want to mention like the, the, the root, I've, I've kind of read about this um, here and there, like the root of psychedelic, the term psychedelic literally comes from the Greek word. It means psyche which means soul and then dulaun which means to make visible so psychedelic literally means um the soul made visible right so like um someone i feel like that's what that's that's what's so impressive about it too if it's a true work if it's a true expression of someone's like you know if you're trying to express this thing that's more complicated and it tends to be like maximalist in some way you know if you're trying to express this complicated thing and, you know, I think people will respond to that. If it's a true reflection of what's in your head or what's in your, your life, it's kind of like a purging almost. Um, that's kind of how I feel about it. Sometimes I see work and I'm like, well, that's, and I, I feel like there's some that's like more juvenile and it doesn't have, sometimes I feel like psychedelic work lacks an intention or it's, it's like the, um, the structure or the composition is just like a bunch of random stuff. And it's not really like, refined to me in a way but I mean that's cool too that's how I started drawing stuff is just like draw everything you can the most maximalist thing you can make like the most weird mashup of like disparate kind of imagery so yeah I don't know I think that's why it's it's interesting to people and I think that's why it, so I'm not everybody some people hate it some people see it they're like oh this is crap that uh basketball player saw my art the other day and he was like this is ugly <laughs> <laughs> or something i can't remember so he, if he'll be wanting to collect a killer acid piece you know he'll be regretting that later so i can't remember the name <laughs> of that dude that's fucked up you don't if <laughs> i wish i you can't you can't tell who it is on the stage either like we can't tattle on the person but uh <laughs> i can't believe someone would just tell you that like straight up like yo man no they tweeted about it somebody posted the artwork and then this guy was like that's it's ugly that was his whole tweet i can't, oh. I, can't remember. I, I would say his name i just don't remember i like respondents you can look through my replies i like responding to him with some other some catty ass reply where i was commenting on his game and i said game recognized game but it's a famous photo where he's getting lebron james's uh the crotch in his face dunking on us <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna up. dig through your your reply. Yeah, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stir the pot. But anyway, <laughs> so it's not for everybody, maybe. But it's it but, is polarizing though. Like it it might I, I like if I showed this to my grandparents, like I don't know what their reaction would be. Um, right. It would be polarizing though. Could be, yeah. So like, I, Josh, what? Josh Hart. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. My my re my my reply to him didn't really take off. I didn't want to. I didn't want to like put him on blast or anything. So <laughs> it's just funny. Um, but yeah, I have other. I have photos of other. I had backups. I'm like, I got photos of other basketball players wearing my clothes. You know, I was gonna be like, get look get with these guys. You know, but uh, <laughs> it didn't come to that. So maybe someday. Um, I have yeah, kind so, of a yeah. Go ahead. I have kind of a semi-off-topic question and you might not even have an answer to it but like of all the pieces like earlier we were talking about how you're a perfectionist and like you really want to make sure things are refined and have these great compositions 
uh, of all the say like what to say like one of one super rare nfts like are which one do you think is like the best composition you've ever made or like is there one that just sticks out to you is like when you made it you just felt like whoa like i couldn't have made this any better like this is peak yeah. or are they all special in their own way because like for me I have a tier list, but they're all fucking incredibly special and incredibly like cohesive pieces that I couldn't pick a favorite from. So I always wondered like what, how you thought about those. You have a tier list, like yeah, a, uh, I, spreadsheet I, the tier or list is the, the ones I own are at the top <laughs> right oh, okay. now, and then the ones I don't own are under those. Uh, That's funny. <laughs> the ones I don't own that I wish I would have bought is a four twenty cat. This is a yeah. big one. I watched Keyboard Monkey steal it. Yeah, yeah, great. Two weeks ago, um, and another one that's up there I don't own is Way Out West. I have no idea who that owner is. Yeah, that's owned by um, I think No Nobody is the name. Yeah, yeah. That one, yeah. That when you touched on that, that I would say that one is like a turning point for me when I like when things kind of clicked into the more current style you know the most current style i mean i've always it's kind of been a progression but that was the one that really clicked for me and that was so a lot of those headscape guys or desert theme things so i've had like a lot of really crazy experiences you know whether with lsd or not like i've had wild experiences in uh like the desert or like in a yurt or like in a earth ship or like you know um I, I go every year and I haven't gone this last two years, but I go every year to New Mexico, like um, Northern New Mexico, Southern Colorado. It's kind of like a magical place for me. It's uh, near Taos and whatever. So those, those drawings resonate. Um, I think because it's just, it's my love for that part of the country. It literally is me trying to like express how I feel about that place or like that house or whatever you know so i think maybe that's why that one also resonates with you because it just kind of popped out and it was like it's more busy than you know i think that every fine style little i've sort of taken lines away as like i was trying to put more and more lines in and then i kind of was like all right that's a lot of lines and now from way out west has like a lot of lines it's like maximal line work you know and it's, it's also a little bit 3d it's a little 2d so i think that 2d 3d interplay kind of bugs people out a little bit i mean at least for me i I try to everything i draw is pretty it's pretty flat pretty two-dimensional but i think it's cool when you have a thing that looks 2d but it's also has 3d aspects to it you know um so yeah that was that'd be kind of my commentary on that favorite um, piece i think but yeah so i go back and forth you know like i don't have one rule i don't have one like Thing. like when I talk about the blotter art so like a lot of those little tiny graphics right on the blotter art also resonate with me because this I love this I love memes and I love jokes and I love comics and from my experience in New York like in the underground comics scene like I just love little funny doodles too so I don't want to ever just be like well I can only draw like these giant these big drawings that take me you know a long time and obviously are the like on your list like those are probably the marquee things to me but then again, like the little things are also important. Like the 420 cat guy was like, that's probably one of our most famous pieces um, for killer acid. Like that's been reproduced so many times on patches and stickers and God knows what. So I feel like sometimes people, you know, I took some, sometimes when I started in crypto, people were like, well, this shouldn't be on 
other things. Like this should just be a pure thing that only I own as the collector. And I'm like, well, that's not how Killer Asset operates. Like we make graphics for things and then you do own the original because you own, like there's no, there's no painting of it. The digital piece is the original. So you own literally the original piece of artwork that stems these other things. And I think that's way more important and way more interesting. And I feel like a lot of times collectors don't do the research. They don't know, like someone's trying to buy a 420 cap from me. He was, I remember him saying like, I don't really even like that piece. And I'm like, dude, like, <laughs> I don't, that maybe why are you buying it? You know, this is like a while ago, someone else bought it. Um, and I'm like thinking to myself, like, there's so, there's such a history with that. If you just look it up or ask me, I could tell you what it is. And, and I'm not saying that's like, a, you know, I'm not trying to like self-aggrandize here. It's just, it is what it is. You know, it's just an image, but. No, I mean, they're spot on. Yeah. To me, it has, rel- the more people have seen it, the more famous it is, the more it's been sold. I think that it has more relevance. And I think the original, you know, so there's two ways of looking at it. Sometimes the little images, the little, little, the little animations, the little doodles. You know, I feel like they're special to me in a different way because that's like me literally boiling down like all this crap and boiling it into a tiny little thing and like that's it, you know. So, you know, I kind of I kind of think both are interesting. So and I and I don't always have time to draw all the big complicated guys because I'm also running a business. So, you know, and sometimes I'll sit here and I'll, I, like I worked on six drawings, six skateboards um, this past two weeks. I've just been like sitting here chained to my desk drawing skateboard art and it's all really awesome stuff it's all really big and crazy but I can't I literally can't share it so sometimes like I can't share it because it's not coming out for a year so I'm sitting here and I'm <laughs> this crazy stuff and I can't share with anyone except like the art director or whatever and my wife and maybe a few few friends but so I'm like man so that's why I just rip off a couple of cartoons once in a while or you know try to make a little funny topical thing just to just to keep me like feeling like I'm engaged with something or people are still seeing it, you know? So sometimes it's, and I kind of think that's really interesting with crypto space too, is like, there's so much humor there. There's so much untapped, like, you know, cause there's people need comic relief no matter what, whether it was like, you know, I used to draw little comics that were commentary on like the news or like, you know, memes or something, but like in crypto Twitter, I think everything is so condensed and it, you know, if you make a comic, you got to be quick. You got to make it like that night about the joke. And then, you know, it's just, I just think that has value though, because, you know, people want to be entertained. They want to be amused. Like they don't want to just think about like, you know, big, heavy things all day. And I kind of like to, you know, there's some, there's some really good little cartoon. There's some really good cartoonists in the space too. You know, I think you know who they are. (laughs) They just make funny little things. It's like comic relief. So that's also important. I think going back to what you said about collectors not knowing the merchandising side of it, I think you're spot on where like, I didn't fully realize it at first, right? Like, it's not until you go to your store and then like, Google killer acid and see what comes up and you realize like how big of a brand it is. Um, Well, it's big, but it's small. It's not big. You know, it is big, but it's, it's big, but it's also, it's kind of funny that way. It's it's often though like collectors who want exclusive rights like they're understating the distribution of having very accessible versions of these graphics on clothing, on posters, on like the Polaroid camera you did was incredible and I missed it, but like I saw it after the fact and was like holy crap like that's such a cool idea. But just like the idea of having these 
distribute it out to people who want to show them off. Like owning the NFT is more valuable in that ecosystem than in an ecosystem where you just hold the NFT for yourself and no one can use it for anything. Like right. to me as a collector, that's how I look at it too. Like <laughs> you showing me the video of the guy wearing the please prevent bad vibe shirt. <laughs> it's like it's funny to see right like i it's one of my favorite pieces and then just seeing someone else you know go off yeah. and wear it and be yeah, viral with world. it on and that guy was whole... that guy was so tapped out it was so crazy that video is so crazy i'm like anyway i don't know it's definitely on one yeah it was like that is just that to me is just like hilarious i'm like man i hope this guy's okay but <laughs> yeah yeah, I don't know. He's preventing bad yeah. vibes, dude. I think he's doing great. Yeah, he's. That's a great. I don't know where that. I forget where that came from, but that Instagram is really funny because it's just some dude, like very matter of factly interviewing people who are like stoned out of their mind at raves. So there's a whole. There's a whole. I have to look that up. I'll send it to you. There's a whole Instagram of just this guy, and he's just very. He's just like the straight guy, you know. He's like playing the straight man in the scenario, and he's just asking regular questions, and then these guys are like off their head like giving insane answers so it's really funny <laughs> makes for good comedy but yeah and I'll, and I'll also say like you know also all that stuff with the provenance of the artwork or like what it's on it doesn't really matter because you go into crypto twitter it doesn't none of that shit matters like no one cares who you are or what you made or what you did you know it's like what is what are you doing here and i kind of really appreciate that because it there's no easy like entry you know into like finding collectors or finding other artists like you have to kind of like feel your way out for a while and not be worried about that and you know say sell some artwork try to get noticed you know so there's kind of like this i think it's kind of cool that it makes people reset and you can't just ape in even if you're like the world's biggest artist you know like do you really want to be in the space like that's kind of interesting to me like you see a lot of people whose first nft will sell for a lot of money because they're like it's hyped up and they're like famous but then the next ones they don't meet that level so i'd rather sell one for eighty dollars which is probably what we sold our first ones for than eighty thousand dollars because then come where are you going to go from there you know i don't know what would what would happen to picasso if he if he aped in you know i don't know it's one of the things i like most about this community how we kind of just level the playing field and Anybody can come in from Instagram. Like, there's people I've seen from Instagram come in. They have 500,000 followers and they're on Twitter with like 1,500 and they're like, you know, unable to get sales where they have things listed. And it's kind of funny to see because, you know, you can tell that they're new. They haven't built up that community here of specific NFT collectors here. And that's where the money is and that's where it matters. Um, it's kind yeah, of a weird phenomenon as someone like I didn't spend a lot of time in the Instagram world. So to see right. it now where I'm just like doing due diligence on an artist and part of that due diligence yeah. is like, let me go check their Instagram and website. And then I look at their Instagram and I'm like, oh, wow, they have a, you know, a lot of they have 10 years of work here, hundreds yeah. of thousands of followers. I'm like, you wouldn't have known by their Twitter persona. Yeah, it's same. Well, that's why we were, too, you know, didn't kind of had to start at the beginning you know i i thought twitter was like a horrible place just like where people went to argue about dumb shit and got angry at each other all the time so i looked at it and i'd be like man this is bumming me out so i was really fortunate to sort of 
find some um, Twitter friends and started to take my time for a year and learn about stuff before I started really engaging fully, you know. But I had, you know, I had sold some NFTs back in the day because I was just grandfathered in by luck with Super Rare, you know, from the beginning, basically. So that was kind of just fortuitous, but I, I hadn't. I hadn't put two and two together, you know, sometimes people talk about like crypto art OGs and I'm like, I'm not really like, I wasn't really like fully engaged with it. I didn't really understand it all until like maybe a year and a half ago, you know, it's still earlier than, than a lot, but I can't really claim to have been like buying and selling back in 2018. You know, I sold some NFTs in 2018, but I didn't really understand it. Um, I wish I had kind of, I wish I had, I wish I had knew more about it at the time, you know? So, but why, why were you grandfathered into Super Rare? Because I I remember when I found your work on there, I think at the time it was somewhat surprising to me because it was definitely not what I was used to looking at at Super Rare at that moment, right? Yeah. Well, I met the Super Rare guys through my friend Al. Um, he introduced me to them. He was helping them come up with their branding and like their name and stuff. I, I think they were so called Pixura, and I went out one night to a bar and to play pinball with, with um, the founder of Super Rare, John. And we, he was talking about this project and he showed me CryptoPunks and CryptoKitties. Like he showed me a few things and it was like, wow, this is awesome. Like, and I was really, I was really psyched about it, you know? So they were like, would you give us some images? We're gonna go to this, um, I guess it was like some kind of event in Denver. They were gonna go and try to launch them in some kind of form i don't really understand the whole dynamics of it but i think that the test was like a somewhat of a failure and they weren't able to actually launch and give people the nfts that i had that i had given them i think i gave them like 18 of them and so what happened was they later once they had super rare built like maybe six months later they took um three of those nfts and they put them on super rare for me and I didn't even know about it. I'm like, and I, like six months later, maybe t- beginning of 2019 or something, I'm like looking at Super Rare. I'm like, wait, what? I have an account on here? And they, they sold this? Like they sold one of these? I don't remember that. But um, and I'd given them license to do whatever. So I didn't really care. And these were like anim- little animated gifts. So I wasn't super concerned about it. But um, so, you know, then they gave me the keys to the platform and I started minting stuff. A little later i don't know when i really started but the first three are on there because they they actually put them on there for me so it's just kind of an interesting way i mean that's you know and, also, I, and this is some this is completely unrelated but people ask me this sometimes like people i meet like young artists or i meet them at like uh, events and stuff and like how do you how do you get started in this how do you do this how do you meet people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm always like, you need to like transplant yourself from your small town or wherever to like a city where this stuff's happening, you know, where people are gathered. And I don't know if it's still as much like this now. I mean, maybe it's changed a little bit because we're all we're a little more isolated at home. But I really did find value in that, like plunging myself into New York, the art scene there. And, you know, I wouldn't have met Super Rare. I wouldn't have met like so many people. I wouldn't have gone on this like, weird adventure had I not plunged myself into the, the big city you know so I kind of think that you find like your art people there you'll find like a, you can you know find a collective of young people who all want to to make something or have in- similar interests so 
you know, when I was in New York, I met like um, Secret Project Robot. Like this is this art collective I was part of for a couple years. And that influenced me, you know, going to Desert Island Comics. Desert Island is like one of the best stores I've ever been to. The, the guy who runs it is like amazing. So, you know, that was I, that networking with these people. And the awesomest part about Desert Island, it's like open sea, right? He, he will take anybody's zine. He'll take anybody who walks in with a comic. He'll look at it and he'll put it on sale. Like to me, that was the awesomest thing ever. Like there's not some dude behind the counter at other stores. They look at your stuff. You know, you have to apply. They have to vet you. You have to know somebody. But this guy is like, you know, open source. Like everyone come in with a comic. As long as it's not totally fucked up or graphic or, you know, like messed up, then he'll take it and just put it on the spinner rack. And, you know, and that's how I got started too. I would go sell stuff at that store and a couple other stores. So, I would kind of always tell people, like, find a place where this is happening and go there. And, you know, it might take you a year. It might take you three years. But you'll find some. You'll find it. You'll find, like, a niche there, you know. So and kind I of got like off. That, yeah. I feel like you. No, I don't think you got off track at all. I feel like um, you at that time were also really fortunate from the standpoint that you were not only in the artist community, but you were in the, in the music scene as well. And obviously music has a lot of influence in your artwork and um i mean so i think that community clearly helped you grow your style and your um you know fan base and everything as well i was a i was a bit of a failed musician so i mean in terms of like having a a career out of it you know i made i made bad business decisions but i definitely and i didn't mean it that many no no no. i meant the fact that you were in the clubs and you were constantly around the bands and playing yourself and just getting your name out there getting your art out there like you said all that right yeah, that's true. Well, that's how I learned how to be to do a business the wrong way. But also like knowing, yeah, also just networking and meeting all sorts of creative people. Like, I think that is helpful. I think seeing how certain bands do it. I mean, I still make a lot of artwork about music and I don't really write music anymore, but I some, I'd like to someday maybe come back to it. But yeah, kind of interesting seeing how all that shake out. So. I'm going through your Instagram right now and the birthday post you put up so thoughtful. I'm reading through it. I'm like just going through and looking at all the different new stuff on your Instagram and stumbled Mm -hmm. upon this, but I didn't realize that like, I I think we take it for granted now um, being of the internet age where I was able to stay in Ohio my whole life and like stumble into this community without moving. Um, But it's only because of being online. Whereas like, 10, 20 years ago, like I probably would have had to pack it up and go to some crypto centered city right, to find these people. And we're so like damn lucky to have this online now where we can just be on Twitter, be in Discord, be on all these different social media communities and just find people who have the same ideas and build with them. I think it like opens up so many more collaborations and pathways that just didn't exist. And I take it for granted every single day. No, that's true. I mean, I, that, there, is a, there is power in that. Although I still think there's value in young artists going to the big city. I got to say, it's better than Twitter. But I get what you're saying. And I also feel, I also agree with you. So, I mean, I, I live in a small town now. You know, I don't, I don't, I travel. I used to travel a lot. I used to travel a ton, but I don't get to travel as much now. Um, so, yeah, I think it is vital to have that community it's vital to have that 
that sort of social media group, you know, so. Yeah, I think the real life experiences are best, like if you can, like 100% real life experience. But if you're a introverted hermit who doesn't yeah. like people and wants to be out in cornfields. <laughs> that's, <laughs> somehow... that's how I feel too, usually. So, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Like, just the thought of, like, living an idea with your family now, <laughs> like, living in New York City with your family, <laughs> still, like, being in the city, just, I don't know, it would be horrible. One of the questions I have, and I think you answered this before in another space, but I'm going to ask it here, um, of the original NFTs on Super Rare, you still have one of them, and is the story behind that is like they listed the others, but they just wanted you to keep one um, for yourself or like, did that thing get unlisted when you came back or like, what's the story behind you holding on to it? Cause I think it's really rare for an artist to hold on to one of their early or Genesis works for like this long. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I misspoke maybe a little. Um, I didn't actually, so they, they only sold one of the, original three so the other two and i think that was maybe given to somebody that was a collaborator or something i'm not exactly sure um but i had the, i still had two and i sold one i believe to art gnome for what i thought was probably a ridiculous amount of money at the time probably like one ethereum or 1.3 or something silly but i just kept the other one because i was i don't know why i just i just liked that was i just really liked that one and i didn't want to sell it and I never wanted to. I don't know why. I just, and even when I got, was getting offers for it for like 10 Ethereum, when other artwork was barely selling for like two or three, I was I just didn't take it because I just, I was like, ah, oh, that guy's like my favorite. I'm just going to keep him. Like it wasn't really a rhyme or reason behind it. It didn't have a plan. I just, I just kind of wanted to hold on to him. And I think maybe someday, you know, I might auction it or, you know, I might find a home for him, but it would have to be like a pretty special you know transaction i'm not going to just give it away you know or not just give it to the highest bidder maybe even i kind of wanted to go to a good home so i feel like that's kind of something too we can maybe talk about is like at first in crypto i didn't really talk to collectors i didn't really understand anything about that and now i feel like i want the artwork to go to somebody who's going to appreciate it you know so i kind of feel like there is a bit of that when you talk about talk with somebody you get to know what their sensibilities are you get to look at their collection there's just something about that and i feel like you know i feel like i advise sometimes younger artists i'm like yo look at their look at their um open like copy their wallet idea on your bid and like look at what look at what kind of stuff they collect like look at what they look at what they talk about on online like look what their vision is so i think that's kind of interesting and when I think about selling that original piece, I mean, you know, I don't know. For me, like, the money doesn't really, like, do much for me in terms of, like, hey, like, oh, like, that's a lot of, you know, but I kind of want them to go. I, I see all these pieces going to people who are going to appreciate them and, like, you know, put them to good use. I'm seeing the Museum of Crypto Art in here, and, you know, I'm really proud to have a piece in, in their collection. So I feel like the you know, the piece just sitting on someone's uh, open sea isn't really that valuable, but if they're putting it, if they're doing something with it, putting it into a gallery, I feel like all that stuff is just at the very beginning, like those, those galleries, like I would like to make my own, you know. Shit, I just hit mute everyone, trying to unmute. 
Dees, I think high functioning was the first time I ever DM'd an artist. You DM'd? Um, oh, yeah. I DM'd after Rob. you saw oh, that was a while ago, right, Rob? Uh, yeah, I long think so. Time ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I did it more than once on, like, I think I got him. I asked him the first time, and it was wishy-washy. And then I asked him, like, a week <laughs> later, and he, and he told me the truth, and I never <laughs> asked him again. Uh, but that one was by far my favorite. By far my favorite. Yeah, he's I a- love the story behind, like, just holding it and having conviction and, like, just knowing that, hey, I'm going to give it to a good home eventually. But, like, when the time's right and that there's not really an amount of money that's going to move the needle that you'd sell it for. So it's like, I don't know. I, I like how you're stewarding the piece. Um, there might there might be an amount, but we'll see, you know, someday. <laughs> no, geez, it was beautiful because, like I said, I figured maybe there was an amount the first time I asked, and then the second time I asked, he told me the story, and I... I immediately understood and said, I never bothered him again after it. I was like, that is beautiful. That's perfect. He'll figure this out. I mean, but this is, this is KA's, this is KA's story to write. Yeah. And the piece that um, the Museum of Crypto Art has like x-ray specs. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. A unique one too. It feels like it sticks out. Yeah. That's based on a, you know, those old fifties, sixties, um, comic book ads, you know, uh, with the, you know, they're selling like the X-ray specs or whatever, or they're selling you like, I don't know. They're always, they're always, you know what I'm talking about in the back page. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the ads. Yeah. So that that X-ray specs was kind of like a flip of that ad, but done in a more crazy way. But kind of like the guy in the the guy, the 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 man on that is being called like a perv or something because he's like, you know, he's like wearing these X-ray specs, gonna try to creep on some some ladies or something. So I I feel like that one's funny because it's a little bit of an update from the from the original intention of the artwork. <laughs> I'm like, all right now, I think that creep is staring at me. Yeah, Yo, yeah, right. Fuck yeah. that guy. <laughs> he's just drooling. I love how you gave him like a gold cap tooth too. Just like that little, it's like the little things like that are in all of your art where it's just like the subtle attention to detail where right, it just takes it to another level. So maybe, yeah, so maybe that is a, well, also that was on a t-shirt, but people did, I don't, that wasn't really a great seller. Um, I don't think people got the reference so much. It's kind of like a boomer reference, you know? So that's kind of funny because I feel like I do, I make sometimes boomer references because it, it reminds me of my childhood and, you know, being with my dad or whatever. So that's kind of, we used to collect golden age comics together. So that I'm really familiar with all that stuff, sort of the history of all that uh, comic book history. I don't know what, what just how to say it really, but yeah. What's your favorite comic book series? Like just bridging off of that. Or like favorite, yeah, thinking... uh, I don't want to say like, superhero so I, I feel like comics don't necessarily have to be superheroes yeah i'm just thinking about that uh i have a lot of favorites i really like nancy <laughs> as steep as that sounds um kind of a classic uh strip really like uh edgy kind of um for its time you know what i mean i don't know if you've ever read any nancy I've seen, yeah. so like my memory of the comics is like my dad getting the paper on the weekend and then looking through them 
Um, and then I think that probably dropped off by the time I was the psychology. Nine. The psychology in that comic is so ahead of its time because it's just like it's just like light years beyond any psychology of any comic because it's so it's so full of dark humor and like strange antics and stuff. So that that's a really good one to look at. I think. I mean, that might not be my favorite. I mean, I love I love all kinds of comics. Um, I grew up looking at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was like a, a favorite of mine. Um, yeah, I mean, let me think about that one. Maybe I'll come back to them. I always draw a blank when people ask me, like, what's your favorite thing? And I'm like, I can't remember anything. Like, that <laughs> question you answer it like blank. you're in the shower tomorrow. <laughs> you're like, oh, fuck. Damn it. That. <laughs> that happens with movies for me. I can never like, remember people... things, the names of things. No, I, I completely feel you. There it's a tough a, question, too. I will plug a really good comic that relates back to what we've been talking about. This contemporary cartoonist named Brian Blomerth has this awesome comic called Bicycle Day, and it's about um, Albert Hoffman's, like, you know, acid trip, like how he discovered acid at the Sandoz factory. It's a really good his, – his comics are amazing. Um, so that's a really good one, Bicycle Day. Wow, yeah. look at his art right now. Oh yeah, he's he's that's he, like not back of the newspaper comic material. This is no, no, he's on another level. That guy's a genius. Yeah, he's great. Bike ride on LSD. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> what was his name? You said, sorry. Uh, Brian Blomers, Bicycle. Day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great comic. That's a that's real aspirational. And you know, and also, and I gotta say, like. One of my favorite comics, indie comics, was uh, Boys Club by Mr. Um, Matt Furry, who's in the, I think he's in the audience too. That was a really great, I mean, when I was in New York, that was like the, I just ate that stuff up. I just thought that was the best comic ever. So that and um, Simon Hanselman uh, is awesome too. Those are two of my favorites because the humor, I just love like, I love like, I just love like uh, sort of like crass, a little bit toilet humor. Just like, I just like drug humor and like sort of, it doesn't have to be like the best drawn thing in the world or whatever either. But yeah, those are some of my favorites as well. Yeah. Speaking of Matt, I just realized like, so I'm on Amazon. I just put Bicycle Day on my cart. And then I was like, oh, let me check Matt's books. Because, like, last time I checked, they weren't yeah. in stock. They're both in stock. Oh, Boys nice. Club and Mind Viscosity. So I'm going to order those as well. <laughs> That's a no-brainer. Yeah, the original Boys Clubs are great. I mean, they just, I don't know. That stuff blew my mind when I read it. When I, I, you know, I was, like, probably, probably the same age as Matt so um, that really re- related to that idea of these guys all living together in like a crappy apartment and like all the shit they get into so kind of a very special time in your life maybe before yeah you, I mean uh... it brings me back I lived in an apartment <laughs> with five guys for four mm-hmm. years around uh, Ohio State's campus and it was just yeah grungy filthy dirty bathrooms very dirty oh bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, I talked my my wife into coming from Arizona to this apartment with four other dudes to hang out with me, and like at the time, you know, she wasn't my wife; she was just some somebody I had 
met and convinced to come across the country. And, like, I still can't believe she said yes to any of that shit. And just looking back and, like, the conditions we were in and how obnoxious the roommates were, like, the roommate situations of dishes. And, you know, you have one musician roommate who's, like, now I got to play the guitar with the amp at, like, 11 p.m. and just shake everything. Like, sorry, dude. And that's that's how you know somebody loves you is that they're going to deal with all that crap. (laughs) <laughs> she would come and stay for like two to four weeks at a time wow. too and i would just like <laughs> yeah it was crazy Dude, Dees, i've heard you say some incredible things about your wife and i thought i mean i mean that takes it to a whole uh, even another level that woman's insane <laughs> yeah when you get to meet her in new york uh you'll see but yeah not to not to go too far down that rabbit hole it's just um the stories of you know early 20s, late teens, barely getting by with any money, living in any condition, just as long as you're with people and you have camaraderie. This <laughs> is such fun times to look back on. Yeah, used to totally. buy a, used to buy a loaf of Wonder Bread, uh, 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 bacon, and lettuce. And I had a lettuce and eat sandwiches <laughs> with DLTs for a week straight. Cost me like $3.50. You sound like my roommate who would only eat potatoes and like drink Diet Coke <laughs> so he could spend all his money on weed and uh, Four Locos and guitar shit. Yeah, and getting like, shots just... at the bar and shit, like whatever. Yeah, fuck yeah. I had a, I had a, I lived with four, four dudes, four other dudes in Brooklyn in a two story brownstone. And we had a friend of ours who was like a famous artist, but he was kind of struggling at the time. And he, he was at, you know, he was having problems, but. He came and lived on our couch for like a year and his deal was he didn't pay any rent, but he just, his whole deal was he had to collect bottles and like clean the dishes and stuff. It was kind of a great deal for, uh, at the time, you know, now I'm like, that's a horrible deal. Like, just, like, why is there another person in my house for like a year, a year and a half? But the dude like did so much. And, him and this and was before his- Brooklyn blew up too, right? Yeah, this before, was, yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't that expensive at that time. But yeah, we had he he lived on the couch, and I remember kicking him out once and seeing him drive away at night, and like his he looked so sad, like in the taxi or whatever. He looked he looked so sad, and then I felt remorse, and then like, and then um, we moved to we all moved to Manhattan, and then he came and lived there again for another year. And didn't pay rent, but cleaned. It was kind of insane. Like, kicked the guy out, but then I'm like, all right, you can come back. And like, <laughs> but him and I used to collect bottles together, and that was our thing. We would collect bottles, we take them to the bottle dispensary, then we'd go get a sandwich because we'd get like, you know, $11 or something. So, I don't know, Deez, you want to open up to more people to talk? Or, I mean, I see Chainsaw and Matt Furry. I see friends. Yeah, of I you invited and... up Matt. Um, I'll invite Brian, Brian Brinkman's here. My wife Sierra's would, here. Would love people. to get anybody. Yeah, anybody. Can name. Come. I don't care. Anyone that you just named, I invited them up. And also, yeah, yeah please, I can dip if you need me to. I, I can definitely roll that. So I can Chris, off stage. I, I want you up here. We we want killer acid collectors up here, man. I'm down That's, to if anyone appreciate you guys. If anyone wants to have, if anyone has any questions or wants to just riff on stuff, I'm fine with that. Yeah, we got NFT Gospel up here. We got Matt. Matt, welcome. Chainsaw. Hey, everybody. What's up? Hey, Matt. How you doing? GM. GM. Hey, good morning. 
Oops, I said it. I said the word. Oh, no. Oh man, how's your night? I going? never know Plus when to like mute my thing and that. This like uh, this um, it's hard to get used to talking on Twitter. You know what I mean, guys? Yeah, no, it, definitely. It's kind of weird when you don't when you have to pause and unpause. It's like the weirdest thing. You're like, oh, no. so yeah, it's a little, it's a little. <laughs> weird I try to, try to wait press. long enough, but then sometimes <laughs> the waits get too awkward. So no, I no, feel like no. I have to come in. <laughs> the pregnant pause does not make for good radio, man. So I sometimes. Uh, I have spaces that aren't yours and I'm like sitting there and it's like 20 minutes, 20 seconds. And I'm like, yo, what are these, what kind of shows <laughs> these guys running? going off in my head after about three or four where it's like, all right, you got to say something, just unmute and let something out. <laughs> I, I'm always finding myself making peace signs and fists and crying while laughing, but no, none of you see it. I forget to press the emojis. So I gotta, I, I gotta get better at that. <laughs> One well, of the... I'd like, yeah, go, ahead. No, go go for it. Sorry, I was just saying my wife's here, and I don't know if she'd get on. I don't know if she'd get on to 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 the speaking. I don't know if she would, but she's kind of shy about Twitter in general. But... Jesus, your wife got on yet, or is she no, just... her her Twitter yeah. is uh, private. It's hard to find. Hey, I got oh, a question said, for these when you guys are ready. Yo. Okay, this is an important question. Dees, do you remember Pepe the Penguin? No. Okay, I'm not sure how old you are, but uh, in Columbus, Ohio, when I was a kid, uh, there was a, a, a character named Pepe the Penguin, and he was the mascot of Kroger's, which was our local uh, grocery store. And he was like kind of a, you know, he'd show up in, in the frozen food section, and he'd be wearing like shades and a hat and like a... Um, like a Hawaiian shirt, and you can go give him a hug and, and take a picture with them. And he was based on a, a an actual penguin named Pepe that was at the Columbus Zoo. I'm looking at him right now. So I grew up in Northeast Ohio, and I didn't move till about 2012 down to Columbus. Uh, I've never seen him before, but he looks ridiculous. I see the Hawaiian shirt with the glasses. So, Deez, I was trying to figure out why I'd never heard of him either because I'm in Northeast Ohio. Too. There's, no said, there's no there's Kroger's up there. There's no Kroger's. said Kroger. Yeah. There's, there's said no Kroger. Kroger. I was like, that's why. Yep, exactly. Exactly. 100%. It's Giant Eagle country up here. <laughs> it really is like Giant Eagle, Save a Lot, Sparkle. What else? We IGA. Yeah. Yeah, Wait, do you guys know, do you guys know, um, cause giant Eagles, uh, it, it's all, I mean, it's definitely all over like Cleveland and stuff, but it's a Pittsburgh chain. Do you know, they pronounce it yeah. Eagle, giant Eagle yeah, yeah, to yeah, the yeah, point yeah, right. that they have their video brand, their video store. And it's spelled phonetically Eagle video, which is pretty, it's pretty tight. Pittsburgh has a pretty, you mean insane, that's what yins do, right? That's what, that's what yins, yins are doing the all the time, do. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Pittsburgh has some pretty highly specific language uh, things going on. The Yinzers are. Wait, wait. Grade. I don't know if you guys, you guys are from Northeast Ohio, but do you have, do, like, do you think there's a Cleveland accent? I think that there is, but I didn't realize it. But do you, do you guys have any recognition of this? Or here's well, what people, I, people tell me. I, I don't think there is one. I think, it, but people tell me that I have an accent, but. Um, and I'm born and raised in Cleveland. Um, yeah, me and, too. Me too. 
right? And I, I don't know that I do. Here's what I think it is. Although, so I'm from the east side of Cleveland, and I think it's more a west side thing, just to be highly, as highly specific and yeah, and as possible side, in this international <laughs> Twitter space that we're in talking about regional Cleveland accents. No, but I think it's basically Cleveland. It's very nasal, like Cleveland, but I don't, can't, what is it? Can't. I think it's that. Anyway, that's my little, that's my little speechology, but enough about Cleveland. Sorry wonderful city of cleveland i mean we love one thing we love to do in northeast ohio is make fun of yenzers <laughs> that's yes sir universal <laughs> uh rivalry that goes very very deep and most of my family at least on one side of it they're all yenzers like they live uh 30 minutes like northwest of pittsburgh so maybe an hour <laughs> yeah that's the youngstown in them yeah, questions for Killer Acid, not Cleveland versus Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> I know we brought up Simon. Yeah, let's we go. We brought up Logan or NFT Gospel. Do you have any questions? Yes. Yo, what's up, Dees? How are y'all doing? Um, yo, what's up, Killer Acid? How's it going? Let's see, good, 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 good. Yo, uh, it's great to meet you. Um, yeah, I, um, I definitely uh, really was trying to collect that go out of your mind piece on hick and duck and like i didn't get a chance to get it so i'm like pissed off because <laughs> it sold out and literally like i didn't even have a chance it was crazy um but yo congrats on that shit and um i can't wait to possibly collect on uh hick and duck because it's definitely my favorite place to collect nfts and shit like that um but yo how did you get in the nft game like where did you i know you've had such a long career and um like, where did you pick this up at, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I mentioned, well, I, mentioned, I mentioned a little earlier how I kind of just met Super Rare uh, organically when they were developing their website. Um, and that's how I kind of ended up on there. And I kind of just got dragged into the, the whole space that way in 2018. Um, and it wasn't a big deal at the time. I don't remember it being like, you know, it wasn't anything like, it is now i think so i kind of miss that honestly the kind of miss like the low stakes low stress vibe of it like just put your artwork up and like you know 20 people are like that's sick and like maybe some guy buys it you know some i'm like i'm like don't really know who these people are i'm like oh this guy's like you know so it's kind of funny to look back if you look back at our the history of the killer acid stuff like we have some pretty interesting owners and you know so that's how i got into that Basically, yeah. I got a question. I got a oh, go ahead, bud. Oh, my bad. I was just gonna say, like, fucking keep killing it, dude. Like, this shit's fucking dope. I'm like huge on uh, like psychedelic artwork and shit like that, and I definitely can tell like you've been through some trips and seen some cool shit. You know, um, I definitely wanted to give a shout out to like Terrence McKenna. You know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> shout out Terrence McKenna. Shout out friends with you. Shout out Sam. Yo, what's good? Um, I'm friends yo, with I'm... the guy on here named <laughs> Tra- Terrence McCona. <laughs> like a monkey version. <laughs> yeah. So you can have friends with, you can meet them again in this life as a as an ape. You know, it's a little different, but I know what you're saying. Um, I was I was gonna talk more about funny acid trips, but then I was like, that's is that boring? Is that like listening to someone? I would no, 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 no
preach. Story like time. That's like uh, listening to your someone tell you their dream or something. I'm like, I tune in. I'm like zoning out. Like, oh yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> but I, I will say, maybe because I told one earlier at the very beginning with the first the our sunshine acid trip. I mentioned that a little bit, but I had a really great. Probably the most impactful trip I ever had was on was actually Dee's mentioned this was taking mushrooms in high school and in Delaware there's this park, Brayon Creek, and there's this trail there called Sensory Trail, and apparently or supposedly that's where you can pick your own mushrooms. And I'm not sure what, if that's where these came from or if they came from a different place, but there was multiple places in Delaware where you could go and harvest mushrooms at the right time of year. And my friend had basically um, a whole brown bag full of mushrooms that he had picked. Um, and in retrospect, it's kind of insane that he, some guy that I was friends with in high school had a big bag of brown bag of mushrooms. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll eat a bunch of those, you know, like in retrospect, like I'd be like, where the hell did you get these? I'd be like, those could be poisonous if he picked if it was the wrong kind like i could be dead because of the amount of them that i ate so basically i was in my friend's car and the, my high school was completely unremarkable it was like the most basic crappy high school you've ever been to in delaware i mean i didn't even have a lot of friends there because it, it just kind of sucked but the only thing we had going for us was that we had a radio station which was like from the seventies and somebody had revitalized it like the year we, I started there or something. So as early as I can remember in high school, I had a radio show, which was me playing CDs and probably mumbling a little bit. So anyway, I was there after school waiting for a friend of mine to get off of the radio program. I didn't have my own that night, but I was waiting for them and we're in my friend's car. He's got the big bag of mushrooms and I'm like sitting there and was waiting and I'm like hungry and I'm like, I'm just like kind of popping them in my mouth, like not really like, and I don't know why, because it's stupid. You should always know what you're doing and taking, but I took like, I must see me eating like five or six or seven caps. Like I I ate a significant amount of mushrooms, knowing what I know now about mushrooms. I ate stems, I ate caps. I was just kind of eating them without much regard for what I was doing. (laughs) So basically you know, we left the radio station, went to my friend's house and we're like in his basement on the floor. And like, he's got like a parachute and it's like things like got fans blowing it. And like, so basically I'm laying there, I hadn't eaten dinner and I'm sort of like watching this parachute go up and down. And I'm like feeling like I'm in this like giant lung and stuff. And that was when I started feeling it come on. I was like, wow, this is, this is like not what I'm even having done LSD previously. I was like, this is nothing like I, I didn't really I couldn't really control myself I couldn't really like get up I couldn't really do anything so I, I was kind of at his house for a while just like in this state you know the suspended state but I don't think my friend took nearly as much as I did because he was he was able to get me into his car and you know in high school you have to like go home at like eight or nine or t- I don't know when you go home but you have you can't you have to at some point go home you know so he puts me in his car he drives me home I get to my house and that's basically when things really started getting wild because I'd never experienced um, the the feeling of like uh, just like being completely unable to like function before. So basically I got into my childhood bedroom and I'm looking at the floor and the floor is like 
brown wood, but for some reason it looks like it's glowing. Like the entire room is like radiating off of this floor. It's all bright red. The floor looks bright red. And then I look in the mirror and I like, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and my face is like changing into like these like weird creatures. Like I've never experienced that on a trip before or since. And literally like seeing myself as like the devil. And I know a lot of people, I've read this in other acid trips before where people experience Satan or they see themselves as the devil, but to actually see that and to be like, whoa, I'm like literally seeing that like, this is like, there's like this evil inside of me. Like there's evil inside of everybody, I guess, but there's this, I'm seeing it looking at me in the mirror. Like I'm literally looking at myself and I really look like a fucking like morphing devil. So that was pretty crazy. And I'm like scared shitless. I'm like, you know, 17 years old and I don't, I don't like I called my I like tried to call my friend on the landline but I don't remember if it's successful I kind of remember him talking to me and like not really getting anything I was saying and it made it it made it worse so like I didn't have anyone I could talk to because I can't wake my parents up or I can't talk you know there's nothing I can do so I just laid basically just laid down in the bed and then for the next I guess it must have been like two three or four hours I was just basically like paralyzed in the bed and just went into this like state where I just just was experiencing like these gigantic insects. That's the main thing I remember. And like walking across like a a tiny little bridge across this void, um, kind of like uh, experiences these insects like looking at me. And I'm walking across this void and little tiny pathway. And I remember just thinking like, if I step off of this, like that's it. Like I've ruined. I've broken like the fabric of reality. Like I've broken everything. And I'm thinking about like my parents. I'm thinking like I've destroyed my life. Like I've destroyed the world. So like, I don't know. I don't know why I thought like this was, you know, I, I'm egotistical to, to feel that way. Cause it's like, you know, but that's what that's how my mind was working at the time. So there was a train that would go by my house. It would go by a couple, like a block away every, every hour or so you'd hear the train and the train would be like, Sometimes you'd hear like the 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 horn would be like and it would like reverberate really far away kind of sounding. So every hour or so, and I was used to that sound. Growing up, that sound was like completely comforting to me. So every time that train would go by every hour, I kind of noted the time. And I felt like that train was like taking my like the bubble off of my head, which is kind of where I was experiencing these things inside of my head. But it, like remove this like cap off of my head. I felt the train, like the sound of the train, like pulling it away. And then it would be replaced by another one. And then I would enter into a different, a different weird series of experiences or whatever. And I just, this just went on for, must've been a few hours, but finally, like I, I finally like came out of it and I, I sat up and I, it was like, almost like I was like in this trance. I sat up and I had like peed the bed and I had ripped my pillowcase. I'd ripped my pillow in half. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I had this strength, but I like ripped my pillow open and there's like pillow debris, like all over the bed. And I just remember waking up from that and being, and feeling like that scene in Christmas story where like Scrooge gets up and he's like alive again. And he's like, wow, like, I can't believe it. Like everything's great. So I'll never forget like feeling like that. And I'm like, like jumping up and down and I'm like so happy to be alive. And I'm like, and like, you know, I, I'm bad is like, I'm like covered in piss and like covered in like 
debris from the pillow and stuff. But I just, I remember, I never forget how happy I was to be alive. And like having seen all that like crazy shit that was like evil and desperate and stuff. And I think that feeling of being, that feeling of that joy of life I, it was somehow shown to me again, like this childhood wonder or something. And I don't know why, I, I wish it hadn't have come with like a the hero's journey, like the terrible, you know, seeing all this crazy weird shit, but that's kind of what happened. So that's the story. That's it. Waking up in piss and debris. <laughs> that's the best the, part of the story. The happiest man alive. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to think if you think was... seven caps, it's like, it was a lot. Five to seven. It was definitely fucking mushrooms, yeah. dude. It, it was, was more mushrooms. It was, and I didn't know what I was doing, you know. So I didn't have a guide at that time. That's awesome too. That like you just had to go through it alone. There was nobody with you, no one you could call. You couldn't go tell your parents. Just like going. Well, through the it. quiet. It's like. It's like the quiet of the house. You know what I mean? When you're a kid or whatever, you're in high school and the quiet of your parents' house at night. Like, it's like you're trying to like not violate that silence, but like, it's like that amplified by a million. Like thinking I'm going to wake up my parents and they're going to like discover that I'm like in here tampering with the universe or something. That's like literally what I was feeling. This like weird fear. I wish I had just waken them up, but like, what the hell was I going to say? You know? Yeah, too. Like they'd it probably depends. take me to the hospital or some shit, you know? Depends on your parents, too, right? Like, there's some parents that they'd be like, cool, chill, calm down. Other parents would think, like, you're literally possessed. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. My parents took me, my parents took me to, like, a psychiatrist a few times. You know, they thought I was, like, bonkers. It's, I mean, my parents are really cool. And, like, we have a great relationship now, but at the time, they, they, they were worried about me because I was, you know, I was dabbling with stuff and. I knew not to cross the line into anything like shit, you know, because in Delaware, I think it's probably like that everywhere. Like I had a lot of friends growing up who, who died from heroin and all that crap. So I just never knew, I knew to never touch any drug that wasn't about trying to like learn something or mind expansion or something. So, yeah, but you know, my parents, like you were saying earlier, like dare and all that, my parents didn't know the difference either. So, because it is a slippery slope and, you know, so they're looking at you, they're like, well, he's taking all these drugs and, like, nah, I'm like, mom, I'm trying, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to like, get to that Pink Floyd level, mom. I'm trying to learn some shit. <laughs> like, I'm not trying to like, kill myself. I'm trying to like, become someone. You know, like the difference to a suburban parent isn't really obvious. You know, so trying to become to be numb, mom. Yeah, I'm trying to get to that fucking <laughs> the wall, man. I'm trying to get to those advanced levels. <laughs> my, my, I could never get away with shit because my dad was a hippie that lived out in Berkeley in the 60s and sold leather belts out of a van at the Alameda Market. <laughs> so, like, regardless of what I did, he's like, I've done it and 10 times worse. Uh, but it was good. Yeah, like, yeah. he didn't give a shit what I did, um, which I guess turned out okay. Uh, but I, I had a kind of question, too, for you, man. Like, Maybe you shared it prior, but like when you go in and uh, start with like an art piece, like do you have a plan ahead of time? Like know what you want to do, or is it kind of more like free flow, or is or is it vary? Well, so at the beginning when I started drawing, I just drew with just pen, and I didn't sketch anything. I didn't have much ideas, and so the hitter, so the 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 rate of success with that was hit or miss. You know, it was like sometimes I would come out with like something I thought was a great idea just by like like subconsciously or like you know 
sort of sort of train myself I felt like to draw in this like way that was like just put the pen to paper and let your hands start moving and that's like cool to some degree and I, there's like doodle artists that I respect and there's people that can vibe like that and just draw off their imagination without any kind of like roadmap or you know idea but at some point I feel like I got into illustration and I wanted to like or they used to call it like visual communication or something you know like I wanted to like convey something specific. So I had friends at the time who were like illustrators and, you know, went to like SVA and like, so I was kind of like looking at people like that who, you know, were, were, their whole life was trying to like distill an idea and make an illustration out of it and like make that make sense so that they could get it into like the newspaper or the magazine or whatever. So I was like influenced by that in a way. So I started drawing with pencil and I started drawing with like, trying to come up with an idea like doing multiple sketches and stuff like that so yeah I don't know it's kind of been a mix um sometimes I do both sometimes I just pencil the rough outline and have a rough idea um but I have to say more more times than more times than not I have an idea in mind I have like a phrase or some kind of intention behind the drawing and then you know I can kind of fill in the margins with like little characters that sort of are just roughed in as like shapes you know I can kind of like it makes it fun for me when I can go back to the final and not have everything fully planned out, but just like the composition is important. So, you know, that's, that's the most important thing to me. I think in artwork is the composition is the structure of it is like the scale of things and everything else is like little details to me, but yep. That's the answer. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I find myself. I will. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You say it. Oh, I was going to say, and I meant to mention this, that there's this little Easter egg I put into drawing sometimes that are like my favorite, or maybe like I was, so sometimes you feel like, do you take acid and draw? And I'd be like, yes, but like not usually, like once in a while. So if I ever like am on something, like I will put killer acid comma man on it. You know what I mean? So there's a few things out there where I'll sign it. Killer acid man. Because my friend made a song about killer acid and one of the lyrics was like, killer acid man. And I thought that was like a funny way. You should look up the Killer Acid song on Spotify too. It was like a, it was like a country song, um, my friend American Folklore made. But anyway, yeah. So sometimes I'll put that little Easter egg in a in a special drawing where it's like Killer Acid, comma, and I just think that's funny. The art for American Folklore is, I like I like it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I just pulled up the song yeah, i'm not used... gonna blast it but no 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 you can listen. it's a it's like a funny country song and i made a music video about it too which is kind of funny but it's all like diy like crappy one of the yo most... what's up can i i was gonna jump in here Go uh for it. what's up guys how are you doing as all this Cleveland talk, I, I don't hear any twang in here. We need some no. some country twang. The refined Cleveland gentlemen at this point. <laughs> they're, they're like, oh yeah, Cleveland, Cleveland strong. I'm like, these guys are refined. So refined. No, <laughs> no country twang. You guys need a little more twang in here. So I thought I thought I would jump in um, and and uh, and say one. I love your stuff. It's amazing. Um, I'm. Uh, and I, and, you know, I kind of perused down and there's like so many massive talents in here. Um, 
alien queen is who reposted the tweet and I got in here through seeing her stuff. Um, but, and I'm not here to shill anything, but I'm working on a cannabis based NFT project and hands down every single person who saw what I was working on. I was like, you have to check out killer asset. You have to check like, like every single one of them, um, referred me to what you were doing. Um, and, and I love your stuff. It's amazing. Um, but like to the point, um, like I would like to kind of point out that like, as things are getting more and more legal, at least in terms of like cannabis and, and marijuana and stuff, um, you have all these people who have been hungry for so long to, to like express their love for, you know, they love cannabis and they love their recreational drugs. Right. Um, and they're not criminals, but their entire life they've been treated like criminals. I think NFTs have a very unique role to play in like helping people celebrate the thing that they already love. Right. And I think that like, you're kind of a pioneer in, in this space. Um, but I think we're going to start seeing like more and more, um, things that elevate this as well and like bring real true talent and art to, to this space that has been kind of, you know, shat on the entire, this entire existence. So I think, I think it's, you're doing, doing good work, doing good work. Well, I mean, I've been making weed dudes for, you know, a long time. So I don't know. I just, I feel like there's always been a market for that. I mean, Killer S has started almost as a, I had analyzed what was in head shops when I was a teenager and growing up. And then, so Killer Acid actually started as a like art project um, in a gallery space. Like we made our own, this isn't how, this is what, this is what reinforced it. I wouldn't say this is how it started, but we made a head shop that was like a virtual head shop where they had all, everything was made and put in there. All the products were fake. Everything was, you know, it's kind of like the idea of Omega Mart with um, Meow Wolf or whatever, but um, that's a whole other story. But we, we made, basically made our own head shop in the gallery space, built like a, a shack in the middle and sold products. And that's kind of how I entered into the space was trying to create my own original ideas about marijuana because an original ideas about like head shop culture, because it nothing, nothing has been updated since the nineties, the nineties took sixties art and flipped it. And there really wasn't a lot of originality in that world, you know, as far as I can tell. So that was one of the impetus of starting Killer Acid, although I kind of started it as a little bit tongue in cheek, you know, kind of poking fun at all of that, but also celebrating it because I honestly truly love it all. So, you know, um, I think, yeah, there was a little there at first there definitely I think it's become more ubiquitous now. It's become more accepted and everywhere. And I see little weed dudes all over the place now. You know, I'm like, I drew that weed dude like 10 years, like 15 years ago, I was drawing that weed dude. I'm sure there's some anthropomorphic weed dude in the 60s comics somewhere. I've seen them, but they don't, they, I don't know if they have big eyes and look funny. You know, I'm not sure, but I definitely have seen that somewhere in Zap comics or, you know, head shop culture. I knew, I know Matt Furry drew like a peace sign dude at some point, you know, there's like this sort of lineage in like underground comics of these kind of like irreverent little things, you know, like, or like jokes about weed or stuff. So it's, it's, there's always been this thread there, I guess. And just tapping into it is like, it's fun. And 
And I'll also say that I, I have some of your, I think I've collected some of your, um, your collection. Is it the, um, can you remind me what it is? So well, I, again, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to get in here and no, just no, be no, shilling. No, <laughs> I said my memory's bad. I can't remember their name. Don't, this isn't a show. So we so we have monster buds. Oh, that's and it. Then, yeah, yeah, monster buds. Yeah, I have. And, I I got like twelve of those 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 guys. Heck you know? yeah, yeah. Heck I saw yeah. That. So I try to support and, those kind of products. You know, I don't see that stuff and be like, oh, I don't. They're drawing this thing. I don't. You know, I I saw that shit. And I was like, I'm getting twelve of these dudes. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to learn how to breed them shits. <laughs> right. So it, it ain't hard. Yeah. But, but it, gas has been high, right? Right. Um. But like you know, like there was. I think that's the challenge of like entering this space right it's like we're like how do you bring a style to it that is your own without like departing into bad california raisin art world right like it's stylistic but not like a, a caricature right um and it's it's a it's a it's a weird line to ride but like we've we've had a blast with it and i can just tell that you you love what you do and I just think it's a very interesting time where these two worlds can kind of come together and make something completely new that nobody's seen. And I was like, I was super pissed off because somebody, um, somebody in the Discord came up with it before me, and they they called it um, Smoky Mons. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of that? It's too perfect. And yeah, I, I just yeah, maybe too on the nose though. I don't know. It, I made... Yeah. I made a Smoky Mon comic or a Smokedex. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, I made a drawing like that before. That was like an evolution. I, I maybe I'll post it again. But I don't. I think that's low hanging fruit. So you should, you know, you shouldn't worry. Like that's just all that stuff. The people get bent out of shape about. Like, oh, I thought of that first. Well, you know what? It's the collective unconscious, and like that's low hanging fruit. Like anyone can make a po Pokemon pun. Like Pokemon is like the biggest thing in the world. Like, yeah. Oh, Pokemon smoking weed. Oh, yeah. Like you think right, you're right. overthinking of that? No, come on. Like there's been... well, I, it was more like <laughs> joking, right? It's like yeah, it was yeah. just like so perfect. Uh, of course, we wouldn't have named it that, but um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, wanna, I just yeah. think you know, I I don't know if you know, but like you're the one that everyone uh, cites as reference uh, oh, good, for, good. for this as well. So like one hundred percent. Where's my checks? Uh, <laughs> where's <laughs> my royalties? Royalties. Need some royalties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming up and talking. Man, I, I love I love talking talk about NFTs and and this whole space all day long. I'm I'm fairly new to it in general, so I'm learning a lot. And I just think the community that's just across the board is just kind of blowing my mind. Um, so yeah, some of them are all right. They're all right. <laughs> all right. Well, dude, thanks. Keep up the good work. Uh, we'll be seeing you. I'm sure. Thank you. All right. Okay. Later. Bye. Oh, geez, we should do a call-in show. Sounds, this is a fun. I'm sort of getting the hang of it. Dude, it's, it's great. Space is like, get off awesome. my phone. <laughs> Vibe all day. I can make you a co-host, and then you can even kick people too. So if you... get off my phone. <laughs> get off my lawn, Rob. That's what I want to say. That's what. Uh, that's what my favorite radio host says. You know, the best show. Get off my phone. <laughs> anyway. Rob, I I got a question about psychedelic art. Uh, all right. Okay. Um, what do you, what, what do you think is the difference between psychedelic art that's figurative, like your stuff, which is characters and things like that, 
and psychedelic art that's more like uh you know abstract or even i'm thinking like screen screensavers i remember being 14 years old and enjoying screensavers and things like that but i wonder because there there are sort of two distinct camps um in the nft scene and i thought it was interesting when you were you were saying this was this chat was going to be about psychedelic art and um yeah yeah there's two different i just curious to hear what you think about it well, I was also a huge fan of visualizers growing up, and I wish that we had. I wish someone would make a visualizer for my computer now because I don't have one. So maybe you could recommend one. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I think there's. I don't think there's a better or worse. I think you know there's value in everything. My wife makes crazy trippy op art, and I it's some of my favorite stuff. You know, I look at it every day. I, I appreciate um, purely visual art because without without literal creatures or eyes or anything you know because i i just feel like that's sort of like visceral and immediate you know and um i, I was just gonna say like when, when when my friends and i were in high school one of the things we did was like low budget like light shows like I, we found like a one of those convex mirrors from the mall with the security camera or whatever and we i remember we had that as a really big mirror like a two foot wide round thing and we would like we would like shake uh christmas lights and different like leds in there and like one person would just sit there and look and the other people's job was to like operate the thing and i just remember that was like you know that was the that was really fun um so i kind of think about it that way i just like the visual the visual aspect of it there's also like the the grateful dead like light show like the um what's that called? I can't remember the name of it, but like the overhead projector, overhead thing with the, the oil and the water tray, you know, I can't remember the exact name of it, but I don't know. I think I, I love all that stuff. I think it's great. If I, if I was, if I was more high minded and less of like a degenerate, like cartoonist, I would probably have engaged in something a little more like that. You know what I mean? I wish I could, I aspire to make work like that. Cause it's like, removing yourself and your experiences in a way and creating a purely visual or you know it's less about your ego or less about your own personal experiences maybe so i don't know if that answers the question but... i'm not sure i am <laughs> was that siri <laughs> yeah yeah she 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 didn't know what she didn't know what the hell i was talking about either she heard question and wanted to chime in <laughs> yeah she knows more than me so yeah, I don't know, Frank. I'd be curious to hear your take on that because um, I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, I think it's um, I, I think it's interesting. Like, obviously, psychedelic art is is broad, and it's uh, you know, there's you guys even talking about like music and things, of course. And um, I don't know. I mean, I I I kind of think a little bit about um, you know, like um, surrealism and stuff like that, where there was there was still that kind of thing going on back then too, you know, whether it was like um, more psychedelic to be kind of bending things that are recognizable to you that sort of warps your reality or your references to reality versus, um, you know, complete full on abstractions that um, I think like nowadays can be uh, very, very incredibly consuming. Like um, Jen Stark's uh, installation 
in, in New York. I don't know how many people had a chance to go see that, but it was fucking incredible. And just with these like high powered projectors and everything on four walls and, um, you know, interactive stuff that you're walking around and that's it's a little bit more abstract. Um, but still very, uh, obviously psychedelic and pretty, um, effective, I guess. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's something I just think in general is like kind of, um, kind of interesting to think about because yeah, your, your work is really very much about, um, characters, even if they're not specific or specifically names or anything. It's like, I, when I think of your work, I think that you're going to see a whole lot of characters and, um, and yet it's still, you still manage to evoke in the scene of like what they're doing, something that is trippy and subversive and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, I think it's a, it's obviously a huge, huge, uh, conversation, but I like thinking about stuff like, um, not to be like too pretentious, but thinking about like, um, like Max Ernst or somebody like that, like old, old school dudes that would do, um, Max Ernst was like an incredible painter, but he was, he also did like collage art that was like really bizarre. And, um, I don't know. I think going back, there's like, obviously, uh, I, I, something about seeing old fucked up art is <laughs> it's incredible in a different way because, um, I don't know, just the sort of references they had to their sorts of uh, surroundings. And then also probably, you know, the lack of other, uh, you know, contemporary culturally weird things going on. Uh, they bound together. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Do you know, are, do you know those Max Ernst um, collages? Alex Deegan's super into them. And he did. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah. He, he tipped me off to them. That. And they're, they're so fucking crazy and they're different from like other of his work. And he's like, he's an incredibly skilled artist, but it's also, it's neat that there's something, there's, there's something really pure about doing collage art, like, you know, a million years ago, as opposed to, um, you know, in the digital age, it's, it's obviously the tool wise, it's a lot, it's a lot easier, but yeah, I don't know. That's sort of an overview. I don't know, Matt, yeah. Matt do you have any, do you have any go-to guys that, uh, inspire you for psychedelic stuff i don't know if he's still on but yeah rob do you have any go-to old old heads that you uh were inspired by yeah so i mean i i i guess i started looking at i guess what you I mean beyond like looking at like dada art or you know art history stuff like looking at um Salvador Dali or whatever when I was a kid you know a little kid or whatever my dad was a, a Spanish teacher so I got to look at I got to see a lot of all, all that all that artwork when I was growing up but I think that probably the first time I ever saw um, what I consider like modern psychedelic art was probably like Rick Griffin or um, Stanley Mouse Stanley Mouse like doing the Grateful Dead covers without even knowing what who the artist was on the Grateful Dead cover I could just look at that thing for hours and hours. So that was my first probably exposure to this stuff, which, you know, maybe just like, that's what I had available to me, you know, or maybe seeing what was at the head shop. And it's a window into, it's a window into this world, you know, and it's weird because even reading like, and I, I know it's kind of cliche, but even reading like Alice in Wonderland when I was a kid, I'm like, this is like some weird next level shit, you know, it just, so I was always sort of in tune with those things growing up whether I was like 14 or 15 or whatever and, and that kind of 
that kind of work sort of steered me, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Seeing all those old show posters and stuff. And, and then later, um, I went to the Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore. That's like a really great place. That's the first place I experienced um, Alex Gray's paintings and just was like blown away by that. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Kind of that's sort of how I got into all, all of that stuff, I think. And later I kind of looked at Dada artwork and I, I went, I looked at more, you know, sort of more out there stuff like Max Ernst. I like this. I remember that one, this one Max Ernst collage where he like puts his name, like he collages his name onto the collage, which is really funny to me. It's like sort of like hyper aware, like he's collaging his name on this like pedestal or like in the collage and it's like really big. So I, I think that's really kind of ahead of its time in a way. I see Matt has his hand up. Oh, good, good. Hey, I just wanted to say something um, that, uh, well, uh, well, we watched it the other day. I watched uh, The Labyrinth with uh, my daughter because uh, we had just done a corn maze uh, at the uh, local kind of pumpkin patch thing. And uh, I remember watching The Labyrinth when I was a kid, and uh, it was almost like a window into this, into this, my window into this like kind of psychedelic world or some kind of other world thing. And and then, um, you know, just talking about characters and stuff like that, whether or not, you know, Jim Henson was doing psychedelics, I think he had his finger on the pulse of this, like, um, this idea that characters can represent things like i don't know these boiled down characters can can really grab on to to people and grab on to the collective imagination in a way that nothing else can and, and i remember watching the labyrinth like again in my teenager years and i was like on psychedelics and thinking like holy shit they're, they're trying to tell me something like it's it was almost like it was a secret message that that i, I was there to decode with all the the magic and the wonder and and all that stuff and uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I could see that influence in your work and it's definitely been an influence on, on my work too. Matt, that's such a good movie, man. I, I have to go watch it again. I remember my art teacher growing up, we used to watch it like probably once every couple months at one of the best movies. So thanks for reminding me that I, I'm going to watch that this week. Yeah, that's a, I too. I do think that's a great, I forgot about that. I mean, I've seen the movie a bunch and definitely like Jim Henson um, is a total influence. And then I think of me as well. Uh, can't deny that. Drawing the big eyes. <laughs> um, did you ever get to go to the uh, the Jim Henson exhibit in New York? I can't, I got to see that. And it was like so rad to see all of his early um, commercials and stuff. They, they had these like coffee commercials and stuff. They had like violence. And then I remember like characters like, I can't remember like murdering each other, but it was pretty pretty crazy stuff like just these at these black and white ads that he did before kind of the precursor of the muppets i think i don't know if you got to see that uh that show like i never movies. saw i never saw the show but i saw like uh, I've, I've read the book and i've seen those i've seen his old films and his old weird commercials and and stuff and yeah i mean he's just like I, th I think one of his greatest achievements was just being a, a great collaborator. Like he was able to get the right team of people together to really, um, and he was able to communicate his vision in a way that 
you know, is, is really difficult to do. It's hard to get, if you're working with a team of people, it's hard to get everybody on the same page. And, and you know, I think he just really had a, a knack for um, having just this, this, this way of, of doing things, you know, starting with the Muppets and, and stuff like that, where you just have these more colorful characters. And I think as he, um, you know, progressed in his career, or whatever he he wanted to get more dark or weird or, or more like fantasy oriented or something. You know where that flying squirrel book is? Oh yeah, the flying squirrel book's right downstairs. Right? <laughs> That's awesome. I need to pick up the flying squirrel book. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, that really uh, that makes me happy thinking about the Muppets because I don't know. I, at some point, I really wanted to make like a live action show, or you know, I did I did the stage stuff back in the day, but the past 10 years have just been grinding away at drawing and making, you know, illustrations and then making these posters and artwork and NFTs and all this. So I've just been grinding on this idea and um, it's become a business. So I'm kind of stuck, not stuck, but I'm kind of in the zone of doing it, grinding away at it. Um, I think it, it would be awesome to switch gears at some point, you know, and do something with puppets or live action or music again or something like that. It's good to it's good to think about Jim Henson, you know, remembering that influence and stuff. So that's pretty rad. I'm over here taking notes. I'm like, okay, I've never seen this movie. I need to watch this. I'm like, really right. deep? I've never oh, seen what, it. What Labyrinth? No. Oh, what? Labyrinth is great. Yeah, it's got great music. David Bowie's in it. Looks it's like great. it's on Netflix too. What you was the... watch? What was the big animal called again? I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, the the flying. What was the name? I don't remember. Neverending Story, Falcor, that one. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, Neverending Story is one up there too. <laughs> that my my dog looks a lot like that dog, a lot Falcor, quite a bit. That's, but but actually, ironically, I was scared of Falcor. I, I wasn't even that young, but I just, it kind of freaked me out. But Matt has a lot of drawings of Falcor for sure. The Still Falcor freaks me pegs. out. Yeah. There's one, the <laughs> yeah. stoner I have yeah. fractionalized looks like him. Dude, too scary for me. Uh-uh. <laughs> it looks like a good-hearted, like, like I, I, so this is another one I've never seen. Like, I've, I've never seen the movie that Falcor is from, so... What? Oh, that's a, it is a super sweet movie. You just, you might have to hold your pillow when Falcor comes because he's just too big, man. He's, he's, he's just really big. He's real nice though. Definitely. And he's, he's helpful. He's so. good vibes for sure. Uh, yeah, you definitely. You tell when you Google him that like, oh, this is a good, <laughs> good vibes character. Yeah. Yeah. His vibe is so good. It's borderline creepy. It's like right at the edge. <laughs> Yeah, he's like omniscient or so. He he gives this like this weighty sort of vibe that's like, I don't know, man. It's like how some people are like afraid of whales because there's like, first of all, there's so much you can't see and they're massive and there's so much going on that you're it's just unknown to you. I think, you know, that's Falcor for me. He's a too too um too almighty. <laughs> That's dude. That's funny. I used to like lay in bed when I was a kid, and um, I remember learning like at school. They were like, "Oh, the iceberg. You just see the tip of the iceberg, but like under the water is like way more iceberg. It's like the tip is only like one percent or ten percent of the iceberg. Everything else is under the water." And I remember like laying in bed and like 
like I, it feels like a scene to me from the shining when like danny is like freaking out i remember like thinking about the iceberg and being like oh my like feeling the weight of this thing under the water and not being able to like comprehend it and my just making my brain like freak out and i was like so afraid of like this thing i don't know it was like <laughs> too <laughs> massive too massive just terrifying too big send it home scared the shit out of me yeah falcor same thing i don't know i didn't have that experience with him but i was definitely afraid of jack frost i took that song jack frost nipping at your nose literally and i used to think he'd be like at the window kind of like the I was also definitely afraid of the ET dudes, the hazmat guys coming in your door, you know? So <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my, that was, I think that was just full on officially traumatizing to anybody that, that saw that <laughs> That's a beloved yeah. movie, but that's a, that's a brutal sequence, man. It scares the shit out of me even today. I don't know if Matt, you, I don't know if your daughter has seen uh, ET yet or not. Yeah, I don't know. It's a little too. I mean, I felt even bad having her watch Labyrinth. She was. It was a little intense. There's there's some pretty intense scenes in that. It's actually really creepy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's scary. They don't yeah, make things it, like that. Yeah, no. it seems like an adult movie that it's like an adult movie that was marketed to kids. I think. So yeah, same with Gremlins. I think Gremlins started off; it was supposed to be like a horror movie, and then they just dialed it back so it could like uh, be PG. But it's like kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, they don't make that's them like my that era no of movies though. All the, all the it's just like just before CGI hit and and everything was puppets. Like, like that's like that's my sweet spot. <laughs> I remember that the Labyrinth has this, those great dance sequences with like the the special effects and stuff too i gotta rewatch that i don't i can't cite it yeah i mean those orange guys were basic yeah like when you rewatch these movies like as an adult you see that like the 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 weird orange guys in the dance sequence and stuff like they kind of represent like partiers like they're the rock and roll dudes that are just a little bit you know they're ripping their heads off they're all partying (laughs) and stuff and it's like they're just like fried you know heads <laughs> and uh, you know the same for a, a lot of these movies it's just like whoa like um you know it, obviously with jim henson and stuff he's got like that whole like dr teeth and the band you know they're all just like these fried hippie dudes that yeah, just totally. have like you know this i love the shaggy kind of the vibe of of his characters you know i guess shaggy it makes dog. you wonder like they like as a kid in the 80s your head was crammed full of all this stuff just like mainstream information about these all these characters and creatures and stuff it was all super real i mean i feel like that is like definitely like a special entryway into like psychedelic stuff so so actually i i have a really good example that i i'm pretty positive is i got definitely we've probably talked about this as an influence um well a lot of people were exposed to a lot of wild shit through Pee-wee Herman and because like Gary Panther worked on, on Pee-wee Herman and, uh, and other, other people, I think Tony Ausler worked on Pee-wee. Um, a bunch of really radical, um, New York artists were all like participants in the Pee-wee's Playhouse TV show and like all that kind of stuff. But I just thought of that now because we were talking about, I just recently, my friend was talking about showing his daughter Pee-wee and she's, I think, four. And there's that large Marge claymation sequence, which scared the fuck out of me, even though that's like definitely still maybe one of my absolute favorite movies. 
But um, yeah, just thinking the eighties, there was actually a lot of cross pollination with like, um, you know, weird uh, spike in mics, twisted animation and liquid television on MTV. And then like, just claymation seemed to be like everywhere even the california raisins and shit there was actually like a fair amount of like pretty pretty mixed up you know maybe psychedelic character stuff going on in the 80s and um i don't know are you are you, are you a gary panther fan i i imagine yeah right yeah totally yeah i love gary Pan- i love his stuff a lot i got to um help lay out I did some layout for one of his comic books recently where I got to help pick colors and it wasn't anything glamorous, but yeah, I love his stuff. Well, so you much. guys, the Goonies, I mean, remember that one? Obviously 85. Sean? I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't as into the, I mean, I like, that's a good movie. I, I wasn't as into it though, but it definitely had an impress. I mean, I, and what the Goonies that freaked me out was the setting. I just remember that like weird desolate feeling of it whatever that ship was or something. I don't know, but yeah, it's a wild, wild movies. Oh, Frank, the other guy was Wayne white who did peewees. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's an awesome um, documentary about him. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. Um, I can't remember the name. It's it's really good. Um, Yeah. yeah, There were so many, so many cool people that were just sort of, that that actually kind of, that happened a little bit when, um, when uh, two Tran had that food party IFC show, there were a bunch of different friends and stuff, but it's, it's cool. Like when, um, I mean, I think like PFFR who Matt worked with and maybe some other people in here, I don't know. um, Those guys like do a pretty good job of like working collaboratively, collaboratively and like, repeat with a lot of different artists and um you know i there's a community sort of forms around people that have been touched by uh their you know productions and stuff like that i think that's really cool when an artist or a or a group of people can kind of elevate to this level where they're uh you know i don't know you were talking about making like puppets or stuff down the road i think it's like a cool idea to think about like what what else could be under the umbrella of like, you know, some new, new ambitious project of yours or something like that. It's exciting. Well, my road, you know, the roadmap's got a, a TV show. It's got a, it's got a, a game, you know, we got, we got all, we're doing everything, man. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think it'd be rad to do, to branch out. And I had written some television stuff before. I just never really got, you know, I was really inspired by all that, uh, PFFR stuff too, um, especially Xavier Renegade Angel. That was like the best. But I actually yeah, totally the best. I got I hired Karen Tazi to make me a puppet, and it's one of my prized possessions. So I was gonna try to get a couple more. They're like really fun to to have around, you know, custom made puppet. They're like totally pro. So anyway, yeah, sounds good. I want to see a killer acid uh, animated like puppet short <laughs> film clip thing. <laughs> Just imagining it. What does? Have you ever tweeted what this killer acid puppet looks like? Like, I'm really curious to see this thing. Oh, maybe it's yeah. Maybe I can do a little thing tomorrow or make a little video. Um, yeah, he's like I don't know. He's in my office. I don't, I'm not sure exactly where, but I'll, I'll dig him out tomorrow. Maybe post a video of him. 
I had a couple of design, but he's like a like a pot leaf dude that has like removable sunglasses. He's pretty funny. His <laughs> name is Sweet 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 Leaf. Yeah, right. So I gotta ditch this merch business and just try to be like I'm making my puppets now. I'm making my puppets. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I just wish I could do. Yeah, right. I have no more no more clothes. People email me. When are you gonna put out clothes? No more clothes. Puppets, just puppets. <laughs> Right, I don't know. I need to get more. I think I need to get crazy, or I just mean, get really hell hell bent on it. I'm just imagining like these little weed puppets, <laughs> different personalities. I got a pissed off weed puppet. Oh yeah, it's probably gonna be on. It's pro- probably gonna be on Sesame Street in the next couple of years, right? <laughs> At the rate we're going. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, you have so oh, many cool characters in a lot of your work that would just make, like, really cool-looking puppets. Like, you could probably pick a piece and pull out, like, four or five characters that would be interesting to look at. I know. It'd be funny. if I never get hit up by people like that who are like, we're making a TV show or we're making, like, a, you know, can you design, like, some characters? It's always like, we're doing this other thing and can you, like, do our thing? But if someone was like, yo, I want to make, like, I want to make a show based on your character or something. I, I've seen that before happen. Um, that'd be kind of crazy to partner with somebody with uh, in that in that realm, where I could just be like the art director or like the character designer. And maybe Let's do it. Yeah, didn't <laughs> have to fully. You know, it's just I don't know. It's just a crazy, crazy thing. So. I want to see what's, it. What's crazy though? What's I love about it now? Like I, I worked in the film and TV for a long time, and I just hate how Hollywood works and what I think is so special about what's going on in the NFT space right now is like you can really do it yourself and you don't need the traditional studios to go make your own shows anymore. Um, so yeah, I think there's so much potential with your characters. Just fucking do it. Um, but so much comes into the story and development and, but I could see a lot of awesome stuff with the guys you've done. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. I don't know. Yeah, it's just a matter of how much time do you have to do all that. I mean, I pitched, I remember back in the day, I pitched shows to Fox. Like, I pitched, I did, like, whole decks of, like, you know, I sat there with my friend, and we, like, made up plot lines, and, you know, so I spent, like, hours on that set, but, like, you're saying, like, you send it to some guy, and they're like, ah, it's not, you know, like, it's like, I don't know, it doesn't, it the, the usually pro- doesn't go anywhere. It's, the like, problem crazy. Is, like, all the, like, execs and, like, agents and like friends i've known like over the years like they're just afraid to say yes to anything original because like you can't get fired for saying no uh but if like they say yes and green light something that is risky like that's where they get fired and it's like i just uh you have like all these suits and like people that are pseudo creative like in these positions to green light projects uh, that's why i'm so bullish on web 3 is because you just don't need that anymore and like the 10 of us sitting here on the stage and probably the other 200 people, I don't even know how many people are in the audience. Like we could probably brainstorm and there's probably enough creative brain power in here and artists and animators and writers that we could probably make a show within five days and not need the traditional system. Um, and that's right, what that's really true. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of power in that, I think too. Yeah. So just bucking that system. I don't like that system. I've never enjoyed pitching shows or pitching ideas because it's like, I don't know. It's like, I, I know a good example of that though. Um, like Bojack Horseman, I thought is a really original show by Lisa Hannibal. I've done 
couple comic conventions sitting next to her or whatever, but that show had a crazy journey, you know. She's like a really popular artist and it's crazy to see that show being so popular on Netflix and they like canceled it or and luckily it's coming back, I think, on a different network. I'm not sure exactly what, but I remember how mad people were about it. Like, why are you canceling our favorite show? You know, the show's awesome. It's super original. It's just not maybe not checking every every uh meter of like the algorithm you know performance or whatever i don't know what it was or maybe some executive saw it and it's like what is this weird show or you know like you can only take i i I said that this once myself i i did a i spent like two months working on a project for bleacher report and it was tied in with like athletes and like it was all about like uh cannabis and all most of the profits went to like charity like it was like a really cool structured um you know well thought out merch line that was you know had snoop dogg involved had all these athletes involved it was rad it was like i I spent two months working on this thing and then like some vice president of bleach report or whatever saw it and was like oh like my son looks at their instagram i can't have this we can't have this weed art on here and that was it and they killed it it was like it was done just because of some that's what i was told at least you know it could have been a different story but somebody's opinion that mattered more than everyone else who'd been collectively working on it just vetoed the project after I spent two months working on it. So it, it's yeah. all just like the way like films and shows and stuff like that have been developed over so many years. It's always been such a linear process where like you have a few people making a decision and then like they go make it and at the end they have like one or two test screenings and then they'll maybe change a couple things around and put it out there. Yeah. But like, now you have potentially like 5,000, 10,000 people that are collecting your stuff that can give you input and ideas and are already supporting you ahead of time. That's true. Yeah, I got to make that Discord, I think. You know, that'd be a good way to tie in with everybody and talk about stuff too. Um, I have one. I just haven't, I need to have someone help me with it. But um, that's kind of what Matt was saying with uh, the Muppet Show and how, sort of how amazing the fact that that came about. You know, it's like sort of insane to see the creative genius is running that show as opposed to like, you know, corporate suits. So I got to say something. Can I say one other thing about Jim Henson? Yes, please. Okay. So think about where we are right now in this world, how early it is and how new it is. That's where Jim Henson was and the invention of television. So, so he got in, it's all timing. Everything in life is timing. So we are utilizing this moment right now to create something really unique and really special and to like really kind of set the stage for how people are going to interact with this technology. Jim Henson did that back in the day. You know, he was he was a pioneer of television and you can tell like when he um, set up his shows, it's all set up like a puppet show because he was doing puppet shows and stuff. And then he just had to make sure everything kind of worked within that framework of the television screen. And, you know, you see these behind the scenes things of like dudes off camera and, you know, they have all these, you know, Muppets is uh, it's it's a combination of marionette and puppet. So they, they were like combining two kind of things. And it was all very theatrical and stuff. But it was also it was the timing of it. it was the timing of television as, as a new medium. And, and he was able to form how, how that, how that was made. So, so I feel like we're kind of there here. I mean, I don't know. That's me tooting my horn, I guess. No, no I, I totally agree. I, I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, for sure. I think it's wild. I think like, um, 
yeah, the idea that, um, you know, um, things can be financed without, uh, you know, I guess just the kind of stereotypical fat guy in a suit, you know, sitting there making, calling all the shots or whatever. Um, all that classic stuff, definitely for like the music industry. And I'm very curious to see like, um, what form this, uh, NFT stuff actually takes off in the music industry. Like it, I, I, I feel pretty confident it'll probably, um, completely take over at some point, but it might, it still might take a moment, but just if you look at it compared to things like Spotify and then before that things like just, you know, millionaire out of touch dudes that say no more than they say yes. And then, you know, even if they do, uh, let you do something, you gotta, um, you know, you basically have to slave away and pay them back and, you know, uh, pay their bloated salaries and stuff before you make any money or anything. So I think there's a real opportunity for, you know, the, uh, direct relationships between, uh, collectors and, and just the general fan base of artists and the artists themselves. And I don't know, I, I, I think probably, um, you know, you guys would agree, like just in the past, just basically this year, especially with all this uh, attention and activity and stuff like that. Like I, I've, I've never talked to artists or, uh, you know, art, just fans of art, uh, let alone collectors more than I've talked to people this year. Like even having like million friends that are pretty much, you know, everybody's pretty much in the arts, but like this year, it's even just a great excuse for people to talk together uh, you know, get into rooms like this or whatever, or even like collaborate because there's interest, there's momentum and there's budgets and stuff. So I don't know. I think it's like super exciting to think about that with the, I, I think the paradigm, uh, the, and the, the parallel of the paradigm shift with television and Sesame street starting out and like all those sorts of things. Like it's, I think that's actually a pretty, pretty apt, uh, comparison in terms of the shift that could be happening right now. Yo, sorry, I stepped away for a second. Um, I keep thinking, like, it's weird because, you know, people are so used to, like, mus when you think about musicians, like, musicians are so used to using platforms, like, Web2 platforms, whether it was MySpace or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. Like, they're, they're so used to using these platforms. And I'm wondering what that looks like in Web3. Like, I wonder, do, do musicians just have to, like, create their own platform or work together? Like, I'm wondering how that happens you know, how do you onboard users, but still also maintain that, like, avoid that trapping of Facebook, avoid that trapping of, like, huge corporations running things? Because I wonder if a lot of people don't want to, like, maybe make their own website or network and make their own, you know, Web3 platform or whatever is going to serve them. Like, I, I wonder, like, I, I feel like in that boat sometimes, too, because I don't have really a developer mentality. I don't really have a I'm not super tech savvy, you know? So it's kind of like, I guess super rare is like a great example of a web three platform where it's like more about the people, but th there's still, there's still kind of like a hybrid there of the old mentality. So I'm kind of just wondering about, you know, the, the near future and how more people get involved with NFTs and use them as utility, or whether it's music or art or whatever. I'm just kind of thinking about it. like, I don't, I'm not really trying to make a point. I'm just thinking about like what, what is next? Like what's in the next couple of months? Like what's going to happen? What's five years going to look like? So. 
so it's a great kind of open ended question. I don't know. No, it's it's a great discussion. Like me and D's and like Farouk were even chatting about this this morning with like all these platforms coming out and compared to like traditional like the fangs like Facebook and the Web two companies and it's it's kind of on like the people. Like we can only do so much and educate, but there is a big like percentage of the population out there that probably is just fine with the status quo and they're going to have to really get educated to understand like the true benefits of web three where they're like if facebook offered like their version of the metaverse all like within like the walled gardens they wouldn't think anything different and they'll just go that way um so yeah it's just there's no real like question or answer it's just a phenomenal discussion to like go and it's a rabbit hole we can probably go down for a long time I mean, you, I, I think you, you'd hope that the stewards of those platforms would be better than Facebook, but you don't, you don't, you don't know, you know, it's like, I wonder, sorry, Frank, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, all good. I, yeah, I just think, I think it's, um, it's interesting. Like it's, it's clear that there's enough, uh, interest in web three stuff just based on, you know, us all being here and at, you know, crypto Twitter and shit like that, um, that there's enough interest in like something that's a little different from the status quo. But yeah, Simon, like you're totally right that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, um, just the general public or consumers or, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, it, at the end of the day, they'll probably go where things are the easiest for them. And that's, that's okay. I, but I, I think, um, the fact that there's enough people and enough energy that isn't satisfied or like totally um, feel like all their needs needs are met by like um, the way things are right now. I mean, that's, that's always like when things change and when innovations happen. And um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's fucking wild to think about because obviously um to compare it to other times in history, like, um, at, at other technology, you know, television or, or even the beginning of the internet. Um, it's, I think it's pretty weird to think about the economy that we've sort of created around, um, not just like likes, but like eyeballs and stuff like that, or ear, ear balls, if you will. And so like the idea that, um, everybody kind of intentionally goes to the place where, they're guaranteed to have the highest numbers, the highest views or whatever. And I think what we're seeing in this space is that, um, you know, high number of views, that's a great thing, but that may not be the only correlation between like a successful uh, creative career. And it was something that you guys were talking about very, very early on. Um, Dee's was talking about this, but in this conversation about, um, you know, checking up on artists that have, uh, half a million followers on, on Instagram and they've only got like a thousand on Twitter and they're not really selling pieces. And it's, it's like, I, I've seen that multiple times. It's not everybody. Some people cross over and do okay, but it's weird, uh, to sort of see that, that, you know, the likes and the sort of the eyeball economy and all that doesn't immediately translate to success here. And, uh, I'll shut up. Basically what, what I think I mean is like the, the fact that some people that maybe aren't the hugest, uh, artists in other conventional sort of media or scenes or whatever are having incredible success in this space. I mean, that's always exciting no matter what it's, it's always going to be something cool when there's an alternative culture 
that is happening alongside of a more kind of mainstream or, uh, you know, overly saturated culture. I keep just, I keep talking a lot and then not handing it off, but, um, yeah, Simon, actually, I wonder if you have any, uh, anything to say. It was kind of just kind of interesting hearing about you're saying you're coming from the old, uh, uh, kind of the old model of, uh, you know, corporate media and things like that. And, uh, you know, what's, ex what's most exciting to you about like the kind of DIY and smaller community and word of mouth kind of stuff here, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I, so I did that for a while then before the pandemic for like three or four years leading up, I was kind of already had pivoted out of traditional model because i was just sick and tired of like only thing being made was like either an iron man two three five or twelve uh or like it just, it just was difficult so i started working in vr and i was doing um some really cool interactive vr entertainment style stuff before the pandemic popped up and then this whole world i like saw what was going on it just opened my eyes up to the possibility of being able to theoretically get rid of the middlemen and Hollywood system and really be able to build things with the community in mind um, and work with them. And I wrote like a post on this a while back too. It, it, it goes even deeper than like making the content. It goes to the actual platforms that are putting out the uh, content. Uh, I'll try to find the post uh, and, and share it. Um, but it's about like subscription models. And I really think like future subscription models should be NFT based and like all the content that's put out should have some type of collectibles based off of them. And that gets into a much longer conversation about like retention and churn, but actually not looking at your quote unquote subscribers as just like a byline on your uh, financial statement, like not looking at them as nine ninety nine a month subscribers, but actually community members that want to be a part of your platform. Uh, then as the individual projects, it's just, such a deeper conversation to go into but like i've never been more bullish and like i think we're going to see a huge resurgence of independent style film cartoons like very similar like the late 80s and early 90s like miramax style um whether it's through DAOs, whether it's through being able to fundraise through nfts like just the possibilities of what we're seeing is endless and that's why i always like warn people and like friends that have made like successful IP in this uh, space or successful NFT PFP projects. It's like, it's very easy to fall for like the, the Hollywood BS of the red carpet and like the promises from agencies. But I say like the second they sign on to one of these traditional agencies, like you're stuck in the system and it's, it might be good for certain things, but it's kind of one step backwards of what I feel like everyone's trying to build here now. Yeah, absolutely, Simon. I definitely agree with that. And um, I really think something that's really fucking badass is um, the uh, Grateful Dead book. It's called Everything I Know About Business I Learned from the Grateful Dead. And on the second page, literally, it says, um, it's a quote from Marshall Goldsmith uh, at New York Times. And um, it says, decentralized decision-making Virtual community, social conscious business model, none of these phases would normally be associated with the su successful rock band, yet Dr. Barnes doctor uh, draws brilliant parallels between Jerry and the boys and those corporations that have risen to the top of the U.S. food chain. And um, 
yeah i've just been reading like that and i feel like that quote is like really inspira inspirational and especially since it relates like literally to the evolution of web three and how we're moving into this like you know community-based um art world where it's like the more you give like the more value you kind of provide in this world and yeah definitely <laughs> but yo i'm gonna bounce off here <laughs> i've been drinking uh so i've just been chilling and enjoying the vibes but thank you guys so much for being uh here and um definitely much love i uh definitely love the collective consciousness uh stuff killer acid was talking about earlier i have like some wrote <laughs> notes i was gonna uh say and ask him if he's ever been to cause him. uh have you ever been to cause him in new york alex gray's uh, no you know what the craziest thing about that is my wife was invited to paint there for a full moon ceremony and it was like in February of 2020 and we were like going to fly out together and we had a hotel and we were, she was so excited about it. And cause we're huge fans of theirs. We really wanted to go, but the pandemic kind of put a stop to that. And like, it was like literally like the last day we had to like cancel it. So it's really a bummer. Damn it, dude. You know, we oh were like, is God. it going to happen? Is it going to not happen? So I was going to go to Cosm for the weekend and have her paint full moon ceremony. Like it was going to be the shit. Oh. And then, so that was, so that was our like that was our bummer news. I mean, obviously, so many people have had such a more worse bummer experience, but yeah, I mean, I think Cosm's amazing, and I, I I regret not being able to go. I wish we had scheduled it sooner, you know. So it's, it's a shame, but yeah, I I I follow them, and I I always see what they're up to. So, and I was gonna also say, like, yeah, I'm glad you touched on that. Um, I think about that a lot with the Grateful Dead economy and the lot economy, and they that is kind of like that is sort of an amazing thing to think of uh, the Grateful Dead did kind of revolutionize in a way like open source, um, you know, craft making people just followed this band around and made a whole economy, a whole village that just moved around the country and kind of like a totally great um, tape trading. Yeah. I just love how it was all encouraged. I have a funny, I mean, my, I have a strange Grateful Dead um, story recently, and this has nothing to do with the band. They're like one of my favorite bands of all time. But I, I've been, I've talked to their record label. I've talked to, I can't like do, I can't license, I can't do a Grateful Dead license. I can't do any of their products. I can't do anything with them because the record label like is like, oh, we can't work with a name, with the band, with a brand name Killer Acid. And I'm like, are you like, do you know how? dumb that sounds like we've worked with like other corporations other companies like you know polaroid like other name brand places that we've worked with and i'm like i can't work with the grateful dead because my brand is named killer acid it's like the dumbest thing i've ever heard so <laughs> i literally had a meeting with uh with, with them last like two weeks ago about a project and that's the news i got and i was like man that's such a bummer it's yo what the fuck that's it's ridiculous so <laughs> that's like so that's exactly what we're talking so about close. it's so it's so anti this idea of what they stood for i mean i get it you know i i mean i understand but it's also like i wasn't it's not like i'm gonna jaw like like they don't their artwork doesn't ever have any like drug references anymore and even back in the day it didn't really ever either which is kind of insane to think of you know it's like you don't see like a lot of the characters like smoking pot. Like this, the references are pretty subtle. So I, that, this must have been somewhat of a directive from the beginning of the record label 
But to think that now in 2021, I'm like, what year is it? 1960? You know, I can't, you can't, I can't work with you because, because of this. So I was like, I, I was like, I'll, I'll create a fake brand name and uh, <laughs> just like start over. You know, I was kind of like joking, like, I'll just make a fake brand name and like, you should do try it. Try to man. like fool them. Dude, I have a, I I have a fake name <laughs> that uh, I sell photographs to hotels under. No one will ever know. But, uh, give you a hint it involves the name danger it's a very uh okay yeah it, but yeah have a fake name you know use an alias who cares just work with a grateful yeah, right. dead man that'd be fucking legendary I, I would just have to i wouldn't i would have to rebuild a place to sell it so it's kind of you know i'm like i'm not i don't know it's not like as if the band is involved anyway it's just the record label basically at this point. So I, I find record labels really hard to work with in general. I just kind of stopped doing it because even it's a collision with web three, you know, they're traditionally, they want to pay you $500 for an album cover or like $3,000 for an album. They're not, they don't, they're not like into profit sharing with artists. I don't think that most record labels value the artwork or, or the artist who's making it. I think they think of that as a secondary thing. So Dude, I valued it. They bands, give us credit. But, for the album art we make that's that's just i remember yeah and the web three you know you think oh you put it on an nft with like a famous musician oh like you take half and i take half i'm doing the art you're doing the music you know it's kind of like a level playing field but some i don't know if, if record labels are ever gonna old school record labels will be down with that idea but so anyway. i i was gonna make a joke about um it being John Mayer's fault that, that you didn't get to do your art, but he actually, I think, um, even though I think he's, a, oh, I don't actually don't even really have an opinion about him, but he's, I a, he's he, a big wizard skull fan. Who's in here. Wizard skulls in here. Dude. And he's a, yeah, big, he's a big fan of his. Yeah. He, he also, I think <laughs> is he, he's a huge online ceramics fan and got that whole connection going with the dad and everything too. So, um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was yeah. going to make a joke about him. Maybe, 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 maybe you, that's him. your in. That's your end, dude. <laughs> My parents followed the dead. Yeah. That may have had some kind of like impact on how I was, you know, raised having people who followed the dead, uh, you know, raising you. That's a, those are a good group of people. Grilled cheeses. Just having a good time. Who, who was the, um, person with wizard in their name you mentioned killer acid i'm trying to get them on stage oh he's my uh, my friend wizard skull all right i'll find him see if they he's got a ws he got a w with an s logo that's like a dollar yeah, sign the, this new twitter update it forcibly scrolls the window up when you scroll down so it's like you're trying to um, go down the list it's like you're like fighting against the current or you're treading water to get somebody up here, but welcome, Wizard Skulls. Hello, thanks for having me. There he is. There he is. How's your night going? What's going? I'm doing very good. I'm just drawing and li enjoying listening to all you. Have you ever um, hung out with John Mayer? No, I never hung out with him. Uh, I didn't even really know he followed me until like one day he bought a bunch of my art off my online store. And 
I've just talked to him over like direct messages, but he's been like really helpful for me. Yeah. I have actually heard that he's like, a, he's actually like pretty cool, awesome dude. And, uh, that's cool. That's very cool that he, uh, helped you out. Yeah. Yeah. I had like a Kickstarter to do like a hardcover book and like, he like really contributed a lot to make it happen. And he's bought a bunch of art from me and he's shouted me out sometimes on his Instagram. And you hooked up with Jessica Simpsons, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you tell him to let me make a t-shirt for his band. <laughs> or a couple. I'm just kidding. Um, Alex, are you still in Los Angeles? Yeah, I'm in L.A. until at least November 30th, and then I might uh, go to Miami for Art Basel, and then I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Oh, nice. You drawing daddy dogs? Yeah, I'm working on some daddy dogs right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's drawing a bunch of daddy dogs. Is that what I'm seeing so, all over the see timeline? That, we'll see what happens. Yeah, that to follow diaper dogs, he's doing daddy dogs. <laughs> so I, I, I found yeah. Wild times. Diaper dog. I'm actually kind of whining. I'm kind of whining down here. I might have to split pretty soon. I have some. I actually have to some more work to do. Yeah, we've been going. Unfortunately, for two and a half hours. I don't want to take yeah. up your whole night. Um, I appreciate you coming out, chilling with us, answering our questions and bullshitting. Yeah, um, we do have this. Yeah, recorded. totally. So if anyone like came in late or missed it, um, I'll tweet it out probably tomorrow or the next day. It'll be on Spotify and Apple. But um, I. Was, I'd like to make one revision to a statement I said earlier. When I said Bojack Horseman, it was actually Tuca and Birdie. Tuca and Birdie was the show that people, the beloved show by Lisa Hanawalt that was taken off the air. So I want to make sure that's that's changed. Like Redacted. Listen to this whole thing. Like, yeah. Who's oh, <laughs> our notary who's uh, typing up the transcript of this? Please. You can scratch that from the record. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually on that. Yeah, okay. I had a quick question because uh, I know you were from. And this is I know you want to end it, but you said you're from Delaware, and this is a totally off base question. So that's why it's a good thing that's the end. Are you a Philly sports fan? Key question. Yes, I am a four for four. Let's Philly fucking guy. go. Yes, Let's go. <laughs> all right, we love it. We love it. All right, that's all I needed to hear. Yes, I I was raised that my whole life, right. you know, so in the age of the age of three, plopped down and watching the games and suffering with everyone else. Well, so, on yeah, to come yeah. vibe with us because all we do on Sunday is have like a twelve-hour marathon, watch football, and chat on here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have anything to listen to on a, a Sunday, we normally have space open. Oh yeah, I've noticed that. I just watch like I usually watch everything on delay, so I'm like I'm gonna like watch this later. But maybe I yeah, if I have it on TV, I could tune in. That'd be rad. Yeah, we'll wrap it up. I don't want to keep you here all night. Get back to work. It's late for people on the East Coast. Um, Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you just sharing everything with us, and it's an honor, honestly. Like, yeah, one of my favorite artists in the space to just have you up here and talk about you for once. Like 
you come up and normally it's like we're talking about Matt or we're talking about, you know, anything else, but you don't talk about yourself much. So it's nice to just get that perspective for once. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who really enjoyed this conversation. I hope so. Yeah, man. I, I, just, want, I, want, I want more Thank you so much uh, for having me, Deez. I appreciate too, it. Um, at some point in the future. Yeah, maybe I'll write some down. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on writing some down. So I think that makes them better, you know? Yeah. It's like you can accurately flesh, flesh them out. all the points of the trip when you think about it a little bit more. Yeah, totally. I, I, I could probably write it more, make it a little more interesting, you know? So. Well, anyway, until next time, I appreciate right, it. Everybody. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us and we'll see you all later. Thank you for listening to this episode of D's spaces. If you enjoyed it, Make sure to catch future live spaces with Dees on Twitter and to subscribe to iTunes and Spotify. We'll catch you in the next episode.